Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. In school, it's just not encouraged. We're crying out for young people to do apprenticeships. What you need to do is be on my side. Every time that it happens, we have to talk about how the good men feel. They sent me on for psychiatric assessment, and they said that the thing that's going to fix it is housing. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818-969696. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Oh, where do you even start? Like, where do you even begin to try to get your heads around it? Eh? You, you can't. There's no way to, to fit the enormity of this inside the small space that holds your brain. It just isn't. At the newspapers, which we normally don't delve into on the program, we just generally let others do that, but we don't delve into them. But just to start off on this uh, Tuesday morning, uh, the Irish Sun... As evil monster who murdered Santina is guilty, her mum asks, how can you hurt a baby like this? There's a gorgeous little photograph of Santina on the front page of The Sun and Mooney uh, with the story there. The star, how could she do this to a little baby? This is from uh, Bridget's victim impact statement. And again, the front page, face of a child killer, picture of Karen Harrington on the front page. The Irish Times, a woman given life sentence for killing a toddler. Uh, Barry Roach, the Southern correspondent, has the story there. And if I could compliment my old pal, Barry. Uh, Barry's done an incredible piece in the Times today. It's worth the read on the whole history of this case from the start. Super writing, as indeed has Ralph Regal done super um, background work as well in The Independent today. The Examiner. What did my baby feel as she died? Was she looking for me? More lines from the victim impact statement. Liam Healan writing that a life sentence handed down for the murder of two-year-old Santina Cawley. The mirror, I'll be haunted by Santina's murder forever. Olivia Kelleher with that story. Olivia's been on with us here a couple of days covering the trial. The photograph of uh, um, Karen Harrington from the paper and the little inset of Santina heartbroken dad tells of the pain as his ex is caged for life and again we heard from Michael Cawley through a victim impact statement the echo has a mother's torment killer gets life for murder of Santina there's a gorgeous photograph again of Santina in a little sun hat Liam Healan with the story and Bridget O'Donoghue photograph of a distraught looking Bridget O'Donoghue uh, mother 
of Santina. And lastly, to the Independent, where uh, Ralph Regal, front page story in a black bannered box. It's a huge front page story. 38-year-old woman found guilty of vicious murder of Santina, who was aged just two. The unanimous verdict took jurors just over four and three quarter hours. And the question, how could someone be so cruel to a soft and gentle soul. Your newspapers and your radio news full of that story this morning. An upsetting story, an upsetting one to sit through. Uh, Maureen Twig was there for 96FM yesterday. You were there, I believe, Maureen, when the jury came back to announce their verdict. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. I was, yeah, four hours and 46 minutes of deliberations and the jury of seven men and four women returned that guilty verdict. Now, there was no visible reaction from Karen Harrington when the guilty verdict was handed down. As we know, 38-year-old Karen Harrington of Lakelands Crescent in Mahan, she pleaded not guilty and she told the jury that she could not explain what happened to Santina Cawley at her apartment at Elderwood in Borey Manor Road on the 5th of July in 2019. Um, a two-year-old Santina was discovered critically injured on the floor of Miss Harrington's apartment in the early hours of that day, July 5th, 2019, as I said. And handing down the, the mandatory life sentence yesterday, Mr Justice Michael McGrath, you know, he thanked the jury for their care and attention to those deliberations. And he expressed his condolences and said that Santina Cawley will continue to live long in the memories of those who knew and loved her. And he said that the murder of Santina Cawley, a defenceless two-year-old child is truly shocking. He said it goes against nature for parents, you know, to bury a child, but to lose a child in these circumstances is beyond description and he said that the torment is worsened by the knowledge of the terror that Santina was subjected to and the brutal nature of her death. Now, as you mentioned there, PJ, there was a uh, victim impact statements yesterday from uh, both the Santina's parents and uh, Bridget O'Donoghue, who's Santina's mom, you know, she she recalled, you know, she was born the 6th of May 2017 and she said she was a premature baby, but she was small but still a fighter. And she said she was loved and adored by her family the minute that they saw her. And she said she was the baby of the family, loved, cherished and spoiled by us all, especially by her nana. And she said that Santina loved her rhymes, her cartoons and Barney. She loved her trips to town with her mom and her nana on a Wednesday and she'd hop into the book and she knew the routine. So as she said, she was very soft and gentle, yet she was hardy determined and a little fighter. Now, Bridget recalled the morning of the 5th of July 2019 and she got a knock on the door and she thought, you know, it was Santina returning only to realise and find that it was a Agartha telling her that Santina had been in an accident. She went to the hospital and she said that she never imagined what she was going to face when she arrived there. She said there seemed to be so many doctors and nurses and, you know, she just didn't understand what was happening. And eventually she was told that Santina had passed away from her injuries. And she said she went into a state of shock. She could not believe what she was being told. She asked to see her and she said that Santina was put in her arms and she said she couldn't believe the condition of her. She said she was covered in bruises from head to toe. Her hands were cold and she said that she was pale. And she said that the day that Santina passed away, she said she took a part of me with her. She said she's devastated. She said her heart is in pieces and she said that that hurt it continues every day. And she said that, you know, so many times she wished she could turn the clock back. You know, the disbelief that this could have happened haunts her every day. Yeah. She said that her last memory of Santina 
with her hugging and squeezing me and not wanting to leave me. And she said she regrets her so much that day that she wishes she could go back in time. But she said she never could have imagined that she would get her baby back passed away in her arms in a dreadful condition. And she, you know, she said, I thought I was leaving her for an overnight stay with her dad and, and would see her the next day. She said that she hoped, you know, in Santina's last moments that she remembered and felt the love of, you know, her mom, her nana and her family. And she wants us to get justice for her daughter. She said it would be the last thing I can do for her. And she said that she hopes in her short life that, you know, she'll remember how much she was loved and adored by her and her brothers and sister and the bond that she shared with her nana. She said, you know, when I handed Santina over, I thought she would be safe. I never thought this would be the last time I would see her alive. She said she feels angry at the accused Karen Harrington who murdered her baby. She said she continuously asks herself, how could someone be so cruel to a two-year-old, a soft and gentle soul? Just how can you hurt a baby like this? She said, I wonder, was she looking for me in those last moments? What was Santina thinking and feeling during her terrible death? And she said, the happiness that we have shared is what will stay with us and and help us keep going. But she said that it isn't easy. Now, outside court yesterday, a solicitor, Donald Daly, gave mm-hmm. a, a brief statement on behalf of Bridget O'Donoghue. And I'm sure you have that audio there, PJ. I have, yeah. I've been asked by Bridget, mother of Santina, to make a very brief statement in respect to this matter. She would like to thank the Gardaí for their professionalism and humanity throughout this case. She especially wishes to mention Garda Brendan Ryan, Detective Cormac Totty, Detective Inspector Danny Collin. She would also like to thank her neighbours for their support throughout this nightmare. She will be forever in debt to the first responders and the medical staff of CUH who fought so long and so hard to save Santina's life. Uh, she has said all there is to say in her victim impact report and does not wish to make any further comments. She now wishes simply to get on with her life how do you even do that? How do you even get on with your life? Eh? Oh, it's it's just terrible. And as I said, it, both parents gave victim impact statements. So Santina's father, Michael Cawley, who we know, you know, discovered his baby critically injured on the floor of Karen Harrington's apartment that morning. And he said that, you know, Santina was such a beautiful, happy, friendly, caring, fun loving two and a half year old little girl. You know, he said she enjoyed life, always smiling. She loved people. And he said that everyone loved her. And he said she brought joy to my heart. She was my pride and joy. And I will always always be so proud of her and he said you know when he looks at some of her clothes and toys in her bedroom he said it breaks his heart and he said he misses you know the sound of her sweet little voice her laugh her smile her beautiful blue eyes and, and red hair and he said you know she loved music playing with her dolls and her sister and brothers and she loved being involved with everything he said that was happening around her you know folding clothes helping around the house and you know he said Santina's birthday was the 6th of May and he said it breaks his heart now to visit her grave and all they've left now are heavenly birthdays and memories and he said these beautiful memories they can never be taken from him Mm-hmm. And he said that since Santina was taken from this world, he feels his life can be described as mental torture. He said this is honestly the worst thing any parent can go through and he wouldn't wish this on any family. You know, He said his future, it's now changed. The plans he had for Santina was to grow up, to be a happy child, You know, go to school, college, travel the world together. And now he said that dream is all gone and he finds it difficult to make new plans without her. He said, you know, the constant pain and sadness living 
each day without her can be a constant battle and it's overwhelming. And he said he's lucky to have had this beautiful little girl as a daughter in his life and he will always cherish uh, these special two and a half years. And he said, you know, Santina was brutally murdered and he said the worst thing was finding her disfigured body under a blanket. You know, he said he'll be haunted by this horror for the rest of his life. And he said it's beyond words and he has no words. And he said, you know, the trial, it's, it's a difficult prote- process, sorry, having to yeah. sit and listen, you know, to the graphic details to what happened to Santina. But he said, you know, it's a necessary one. And he said, you know, Santina will always be missed and loved by her devoted dad, mom, sister, brothers, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, and all those who loved her. And he said, you know, when Santina died, people across the country and many other countries contacted him with prayers, mass cards, and thoughts of guidance and help. And he said he will always appreciate that kind of support. He said, you know, it's difficult to concentrate. And even when in conversation, he said he's not present and can go into a daze and then draw him back to memories of Santina. He said he hopes he can learn to find a way to live with this tremendous loss. And he said, she will always be my baby girl, always in my heart. And he said, my life will be difficult without her, but please God, he will find peace in her love. So they were the the victim impact statements. Now, we also heard yesterday from the senior investigating officer involved in this, and that's Detective Inspector Johnny Collin. And I know you have the audio there, but, you know, he said that this was a particularly emotive case. And he said, you know, a lot of those on the investigation team would have had children of a similar age. So it was really emotive for them. And and I think you have the audio there, PJ. I have, Marie. The murder of Santina Cawley has had a profound impact on Santina's extended family and across the community. On Garda Shikana notes the decision the court has made today in the conviction and sentence of Karen Harrington for the murder of Santina. I would like to thank the community in Cork for their assistance and cooperation with the investigation team throughout the investigation into the murder of Santina. The early provision of statements, CCTV, social media clips, doorbell cameras and cooperation with house-to-house inquiries greatly aided this investigation. I would like to particularly thank the dedicated investigation team who have worked in this case for almost three years. Justice for Santina was always the ultimate goal for the team since her murder on the 5th of July 2019. This was a particularly emotive case for the members that attended the scene and the investigation team, many having children of a similar age. Santina was always in our thoughts. We would like to again publicly express our sympathies to Santina's family and Angara Shikana will continue to support them as they continue to grieve for Santina. Thank you. Yeah, and great, great investigative work and some super stuff in the papers this morning, Moraid, about the depth of that investigative work. Absolutely, yeah, you know, and and as you could hear it there, you know, from from Danny Collin, that this impacted, you know, so many people and it was really emotive. But justice for Santina was always the goal here. And, you know, Karen Harrington now is beginning her her life uh, imprisonment and, you know, handed down yesterday and... um, and as I said, justice for Santina was always the, the end goal in all of this process. Okay. All right. Moraid, people are texting the show asking how you're keeping it together because men says, a man says he's a blubbering mess listening. I'll hug my kids a little tighter before bed tonight. 
Um, That's it. And look, my thoughts and my condolences go out to to the family and the loved ones of Santina. And it's it's just a, a terrible tragedy, PJ. Absolutely awful. Thank you, Moraid, for that report this morning. And, and very upsetting indeed. Uh, the HSE has a national counselling service for those who experience trauma in their childhood. It's open Wednesday to Sunday, 6 till 10 at 1-800-477-477. There's a local number also at 1-800-234-116. You can call the Samaritans if you just want somebody to listen to you at 116-123 or you talk to your GP or indeed talk to somebody. And as I said, fine, fine work there from Moirad, who has been with us a couple of times during the course of the case. And just thinking back over it this morning and talking to Victoria in the newsroom earlier here at 96FM, I don't think there is a more upsetting story that any of us have ever covered in our entire careers in news and current affairs. And I think as well, I'd like to thank the people who've helped us cover this story for the last number of weeks. Maureen there, our own reporter. Also, thanks to Ralph Regal, uh, to Olivia Kelleher, who was with us a few mornings, and also for their super writing and analysis throughout the whole case, but particularly today to other people, great court reporters like Liam Healan and Barry Roach and, of course, Anne Mooney. Uh, thanks to you all for your work. It's been a very, very difficult few weeks. Santina lads would have just turned five. And I was coming in this morning and I was just driving along the the Douglas Road as I came in and I pulled in to Tesco's to get a few bits and pieces as I often do. And there was a, a mum there and, and she had a couple of kids and you know she was kind of a frazzled mum frazzled mum now at seven o'clock in the morning and she had a couple of little girls and she was in, in appealing please stay in the car I just need to get it. And one of them got out and I swear to God, she was five years of age, and that's what Santina would have been just now. And I just thought for a second, Jesus, that poor little child. Man, talk to someone. If it's bothering you, if it's upsetting you, talk to somebody. We can talk to each other in here about all the stuff we've covered over the years. We, 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 we talk to each other. We mind each other. Us journalists, we mind each other through a story like this. But reach out to somebody. And again, those numbers, if you need to talk to somebody... Uh, talk to the Samaritans, they will just listen to you. 116123. Talk to a friend, talk to a GP, talk to a colleague. If you've children around this age and it's upsetting you, talk to somebody else. And that special HSE counselling service, um, Wednesday to Sunday, 6 till 10, 1 800 477 477, or indeed here in Cork, 1 800 234 116. I'm just sitting here, says this caller, crying my eyes out. Another one, the thoughts of the little angel with her sweet blue eyes, not crying out for her mother. It doesn't bear thinking about. And uh, just for once, I hope the supports that will be needed are there for that family. And that's from Kevin. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie Let me show you what it's all about. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. In the afternoon in Cork, make sure I'm on your radio for your favourite tunes. Amazing giveaways. Oh my God, I'm delighted. That's brilliant. You never
never know who might be calling through for a chat. Like Hosier. I was asked the question, what's your favourite Irish snack? Yeah. And I said, it's a snack called snack. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to you every day from 12. Love 96 FM. Love listening to your show. Love Simon Murdoch, midday to 4 p.m. on Cork's 96 FM. Someone asked me last night how much prison time will Karen Harrington serve. Uh, she's gone to Limerick Prison to the women's unit there. Uh, there's a there are two women's prisons in the country. There's there and there's Docus. She went there last night under law that came into effect last summer, actually July 30th of 2021. It'll be at least 12 years before she can apply for parole. And if that's turned down, then it'll be another two before she can apply again. So she will serve at least 12 years. Uh, The average time spent by a life prisoner, the average sentence in the last 10 10 years has been 18. That's the average sentence. Um, In the 10 years up to 2019, the average time served was 20 years. But it'll be 12 years before she can even consider apply, applying for parole. 0818 96 96 96. And if she's any... No, stop, PJ, move on. We read out yesterday the parliamentary question and answer that Colin Burke put to the Minister for Foreign Affairs about J-1 visas after we just began to cover this a couple of weeks ago with one message that came in and we were followed by a slew of others, of people who's waiting for weeks and months and having to put back their travelling day. And this is the time of the year when people should be packing their bags and making sure everything is in order and so many of them are waiting for the visa, for the paperwork, and they've had to change their arrangements. Mary got in touch with us. Good morning, Mary. This is your daughter you're on to us about. This is my daughter, yes. Um, as as you rightly point out, they should be packed and away at this stage. Like the visa programme, if you look at it on the um, American embassy, the J1 to Ireland operates. It's a four-month visa, and it operates from the 15th of May to the 15th of September. So the earliest you can travel there as part of a J1 is the 15th of, of you know, for the 15th of May. Mm-hmm. And you have to be out of the country again by the 15th of September. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, normally what happens basically is that they work Labor Day, I think, is the kind of bookend of the holiday period in, it's the first weekend in September, I think, in yeah. the US. Yeah. And generally what happens, they go, you know, some come straight, some go for a holiday or whatever yeah, at yeah. the end. Most most work finishes actually, but so the window now for for the kids that haven't um, been processed yet for their visa um, is shortening by the minute, and you know they're paying a lot of money to get a four month visa, whereas they're going to miss in a lot of cases, up to six weeks of it. Mm. What's the story with and your daughter? She was supposed to go. My daughter is supposed to go in June. She already pushed back her dates with the employer. She sourced her own job over there. She wasn't relying on user to provide her with a job. And uh, she originally pushed her back her dates to the middle of June and now she has been communicated with them or received communication from user to say it will be the end of June at the earliest. When did she make she her application? She hasn't even been told that. 
Um, she paid them 850 uh, It's a couple of months ago now. She paid the full amount mm-hmm. up front. They have been a nightmare to communicate, a nightmare to get information from. Like, apparently, um, her application was delayed because she hadn't completed this phone interview that A, she didn't know she had to complete and then when she tried to complete it, you had to literally just wait on their telephone line until they answered the phone. They didn't contact you. You pay them money to sort out your visa and they do not ring you and say or arrange, you know, schedule any time or anything like that for this phone interview. It's just up to you to ring them, hang on the line. And again, like kind of thing, having pushed back her dates once, if they weren't able to deliver within that time, that should have been, you know, when they request people to push back their dates, Mm. they should have, you know, said, yes, if you push back your date till then, we will have your paperwork through by then. But this open-ended thing is ridiculous. My son was due to go on the J1 um, the first year COVID hit and had paid a deposit of €300. Users went into liquidation. He got no money back. Now, I can appreciate, and here they are operating again. There's another company, J1 Ireland. Um, Another son had gone there Mm. previously. He'd gone to use it the first time, found them very unsatisfactory, went through this other company, J1 Ireland. And when my daughter contacted them, they said they had already reached their quota. That was before. So basically, there was a company acting responsibly, taking on only the applications that they could process. And the, here we have another company. My daughter, like Colin Burke's um, query to the Doyle related to the processing um, by the US Embassy. That's right. Um, my daughter isn't even near that. She, You have to get this service ID from USIT before you can even apply. Yeah, the, the companies like you said, they take so. they take a fee and they do, as they say, they, they take all the heavy lifting or they're supposed to do all the heavy lifting of the application. But what yes. Cullum asked the Minister for Foreign Affairs was to see could the embassy expedite things a bit faster. The response from the Minister was, look, that unfortunately is not something I can do. But they tell me, or they rather they tell yes. my department, they're working as fast as they can and they've put extra people in charge of it, which is all very fine. But if the applications aren't coming through from places like you said. Exactly. They can only work with what they like, have. Now, you know, there was four friends going together. There's, you know, people who have paid for accommodation based on their initial dates who are now have to either fund that accommodation or look for new accommodation, or, you know what I mean, and lose deposits that they've paid based on work start dates. Yeah. There's employers, my if my daughter goes back and the employer just says, listen, forget about it, we can, you know, fill the job yeah. I mean, locally here without they're, they're all They're holding open a job for someone like they were expecting this hold- week. Yeah. Well, she's not. She had already... End of June, rather, yeah. They had already, yeah, um, agreed the middle of June, you know, with the employer, but she's not going to get there now for that date. So we don't know. They've offered her her money back, but they shouldn't, you know, that's not good enough. It's yeah. just not good. Like, yeah, well, you I mean, know what I mean? The, like a J1 is, so is a one-off. It's a, yeah, a one-off. It's, it's, it's a big tree. It's a huge thing. people like kind yeah. of thing. It's, you know, the last two years, there was no J1 program, which means there was obviously going to be a pent-up demand. People that would have normally gone after first year are now going after third year or fourth year, you know what I mean, in college. 
And, you know, I'm now in the position as well that my daughter, like they've all been split up, even the four of them are going to the one employer. One has been able to meet the date, the new dates she agreed with the employer, whereas my daughter now has to go back to the same employer and say she can't get out there. You know what I mean? It's, And she now has to travel on her own as well. Yeah. Out to the States. You know what I mean? Whereas it should have been a much, you know... But will she still hang around and will she still wait until she gets her visa? Um, at the present, that's the plan, but we don't, you know, we don't know, like, kind of thing. As I said, it's the employer in the States is the... Um, is the what's going to determine that if yeah. she doesn't have a job there, she will not go like kind of thing. And that's it. But like, it's also putting in the position because we are a visa, a visa waiver country that people can go there on a 90 day holiday visa. Yeah. And there is running the risk that people will, you know, that students will not, will, will take that option and go over there and work in the black economy. Yeah. Without the protection afforded by going on a recognised visa program, mm. and that's putting people at risk as well. Especially people, if they, as I say, if they have paid for accommodation, mm. it is very likely that they will go over and take, uh, which you know, and that puts them at risk yeah. of you know the whole black market economy, yeah. the type of employers or whatever. We all know illegals oh, yeah. Yeah. in the states. You know what I mean? And they'll just and and hopefully they will meet you know, Irish illegals or whatever who will look after them for the couple of months or something like that rather than people who will actually take mm. advantage of people in that position. Yeah. But it's just... How is she feeling about it all? Company. Well, uh, to be quite honest, I nearly, I suppose I really encouraged her to take the opportunity, especially my son had a very positive experience and did two J1 kind of things in his time. And, you know, you'd want those kind of experiences for your for your children if they come their way and I think it's something that she'll regret if she doesn't do it but at the same time she's a bit apprehensive like they have been very closed off to all sorts of experiences for the last two years and you know she was you know she's 20 her you know she was a teenager you know she was yeah yeah. much younger at the start of COVID and you know those two years of experiences have been taken yeah. away you know yeah. from her yeah. and it jeepers like it's not there was people in far worse positions you know what I mean at I the same yeah. time like kind of things you know but at, it, it, it is still a, a, a bigger deal than what it would have mm. would have been for my son heading away at the but, same time when you're because paying because he'd have had the full college experience yeah. but you expect to get what you pay for. Yes, when you when you give money to a company, exactly, you expect exactly. to get to get back what they tell you you're going to get for your money. Mary, thank you very much. I wish your daughter well. I hope she does eventually get to go and experience the very best of it. But it was originally the middle of June, now the end of June, and no sign of paperwork. And she's one of she's one of many many people. Mary, thank you for that. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six J ones are a mess this year. There was none last year or the year before uh, and they are a complete mess this year. And again the statement back or the Doyle question, the response to Colin Burke's Doyle question from the Minister of Foreign Affairs was the embassy tell the minister that they're doing everything they can, which is fine. But the embassy can only do what they can do with paperwork that they get from companies like USIT, which they don't seem to be getting.
0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie. You guys ready? We're Drive home weekdays from four on Cork's 96FM. Hey, it's Lorraine. So the one second song has been wrecking heads all over Cork for weeks now. It's frustrating. You are joking, Zoe. It's infuriating. But who is going to be the one to crack it? (laughs) Give it a go yourself. Join me every weekday from four. The Big Drive Home. With Cash and Carry Kitchens, Tremor Road and Photo Retail Park. Talk to the kitchen experts about your free design consultation. See cashandcarrykitchens.ie On Cork's 96FM In a few minutes I'll be talking to someone who believes that they have been hacked uh, on Facebook and they can't get through to anybody in Facebook. They can't get to talk to a human being to see can they investigate it and see what on earth happened. But I want to talk first of all to Roland Murphy of Smart Tech about this uh, because you hear all sorts of stories about people's Facebook being hacked and they're being knocked out of their hack and knocked out of their account and all of this. Roland, good morning. How common is it that people would be hacked on something like a Facebook business account? Good morning, PJ. Um, well, like it looked, I, I think this is deja vu, right? It's probably over the last five years, it's probably the third or the fourth time we've had this same conversation. And it's a different platform, whether it's Instagram or it's Twitter or it's Facebook. It's the same old story. Um, now, the guys who who conduct these types of hacks, they pivot and they change and their techniques and the, the way they try and get money out of people uh, alter. But it's the same old story. I mean, they, they send a link, someone clicks clicks on the link, they take control of, of the platform. It's, it happens probably tens of thousands of times a week around the world. Yes. Um, and the cold, harsh reality of the situation is that uh, Facebook as an organisation take very, very little, if any, responsibility to help people in, yeah. in these scenarios. We've been hearing reports of a hack in Australia where exploitative images of children are posted to a person's page and then their account gets blocked. Now, one man living and working here in Cork, believes he's fallen victim to this or something like it. Are are you aware of that one? Yeah, so they do it in different ways, right? There was a a whole stint of uh, scenarios where they were posting uh, the ISIS flag and ISIS content. Now, the, the, the rationale and the motive behind that is that they'll scare people into paying the ransom so that it will stop. But the consequence of what's actually happened is in an attempt by Facebook to stop this, their algorithms pick up things like exploitive images of children or, yeah. you know, an ISIS flag, and then they, they, they suspend the account. Yeah. But they do release the account back. But the problem is they release it back to the hackers. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, it's infuriating. It's absolutely infuriating for anyone that finds themselves in this scenario because you're, 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 you're knocking... Um, uh, constantly on the Facebook door trying to get support on this and get, get them to help you and mm-hmm. it's probably one one out of every thousand people get some level of support from them, you know. If their algorithms are picking up on something, can you innocently fall victim to that? You can. I've seen that happen as well. I've seen people posting 
posting stuff on various social platforms and they get blocked because it's 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 not in uh, alignment to their uh, their platform policies and so forth you know but they, they they typically get what you call a shadow ban so they get you know they they get maybe locked out or they mm. you, they become unsearchable for a period of time um but but normally it gets reinstated, right? It's in their interest to have people reinstated because that's how they monetize yeah. the platform. But the the big the big 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 issue here, PJ, is that as a corporation, Facebook uh, don't support people who build their businesses on their platform, and that's the cold harsh reality. It's been like yeah. that for a number of years. And while they'll while they'll pretend they're supporting people. Um, it's very, very rare people get support. I, d- I don't know if you recall, but probably about this time last year, there was a whole bunch of influencers in Iceland yes. who all, who all got hacked as well. They lost their Instagram um, uh, followers and so forth. But people created such a furrow about it, and it was all over the radio and the media across Europe. They eventually got their 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 access restored. But in the unfortunate situation that it's an SME business owner in Ireland or anywhere else the world and they're on their own and they're trying to get Facebook to help them here Um, it's a long hard frustrating road that they have ahead of them you know. The most familiar complaint we hear is trying to get to talk to a human being, it's practically impossible. It is impossible, it's absolutely impossible you know you've got to rattle cages of people you know who work there and all that sort of good stuff but it's shocking actually it's it's deplorable you know Mm. Facebook make this money, they make you know they're one of the richest companies in the world and they make this money on the backs of of SME companies who build their brands Mm. on on the platform and um, you know there's, there's no support there. Now look to be fair, there's another side to this, in this day and age people should be taking the prerequisite precautions to protect their page and if you've fallen victim to this you just haven't taken those precautions right there's a whole raft of different scenarios you need to implement from two-factor authentication to proper passwords Mm. to different admin users within your account and look people simply don't have those uh, controls in place and that's why they fall victim to this you know yeah the two-factor authentication i mean it's a pain in the neck even going around different buildings here accessing your platforms you're checking your phone all the time but that's to protect you it might be a pain in the ass but it stops someone getting into your account yeah you have to do it there's no two ways about it because i mean facebook is a bloody cesspit I mean, you know, it's crazy. It's um, I, I typically, I have a Facebook page for, you know, connecting with my family and friends abroad and so forth. I wouldn't be a very prolific user of it, right? But the amount of crap that comes through, people sending you links and strangers trying to connect with you, and they're all trying to hack you, you know, and I'm lucky at this, and I'm, this is my profession. I'm doing this for 15 years, cybersecurity, and I'm thinking, you know what, if somebody who, who who's naive to this or new to this and you know, it's 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 lamb to the slaughter, right? It's yeah. um it's a cesspit, so you really do have to be very careful. There's something that often comes up actually, Ronan, when a person talks to me about having been hacked, and I've had a few of them on the air over the years. You'll always get some smart ass to say, "Ah, come here now, you're soft in the head or something. You just you should have seen that coming." No, these people do this. That they could trap anyone they want to, can't they? They can. I mean. It's on. I think from a Facebook perspective or a social media perspective or an account hijacking standpoint, right? Um, you, if you don't have the proper precautions taken, mm. like the stuff we've talked about, the two-factor authentication and the admin users and all that jazz, it's 
it's a legitimate point to say, look, they, they, you should have seen this coming because you, me, you and me, PJ, will be talking this time next year with the same thing, mm. identical same thing. Facebook will not have fixed their support. The hackers will have changed to start posting different images. They continue to hijack accounts, whether it be Instagram or TikTok or mm. Snapchat or Facebook or whatever it might be, and they continue to to steal their credentials and and figure out ways to monetize it. The only fighting chance people have if they're going to take the risk of building their business on a platform that could turn them off at any given moment mm. is to make sure that every conceivable security control is implemented mm. on that platform because they're on their own once it goes bad, you know. You mentioned the two-factor. That's one way. What's the second way, Lastly, What's the other big one you should do if you're trying to run a business? There's, there, there's several, right? Obviously, two-factor authentication is one. Number two is you put in a, a password. Normally, make your don't make your password a word. Make it a sentence. You know, I like trees. Twenty twenty or something. You know, make it make it longer. Number three, set up a couple of different admins within these accounts. So, should something go wrong, you you can go to one of the other admins to try and recover it. Number four. Um, ensure that if there's any suspicious logins that you automatically get notified. Number five, don't ever add anybody you don't know. Never. Number six, don't ever click on any link you get unless you 100% know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and number seven, question everything. Question yeah. everything. Question every contact. Question every link. Question absolutely everything that happens on, on these sites because it's unrelenting and the consequences, as you'll probably hear from, from your, your next guest, are very profoundly damaging to your livelihood, to your business and so forth. Indeed. Alright, Ronan, thank you very much. Ronan Murphy of Smart Tech, a man who knows his business, I'll tell you that much. He was one of the people Ronan was involved with that HSE hack. Remember that infamous HSE hack in May of 2021. Ronan and his team were among the people who helped to unravel that mess. So there's a man who knows his business. Now, Sean, Sean, what happened to you? You're a wedding photographer, correct? What happened to you? Good morning. Hi, uh, PJ. So (coughs) I went to to bed on Wednesday night, Um, same as normal. Woke up in the morning and um, I have a a two-year-old son in the house as well and another one on the way. My wife had noticed through her notifications that I had posted, supposedly posted three images in the night, which was strange because I was asleep. Um, So the alarm bells went, and I I went to log into my Facebook and my business account only to find that I had been blocked um, and was under review for, um, uh, you know, inappropriate images of children being posted um, so when I was going into my Facebook account, it also says that I have ramped up um, about 790 euros worth of ads and they, they're looking for payment to unlock my, my Facebook, my, my Sean Clark Photography Facebook page. Right. And how I pay my ads is basically by PayPal on a monthly basis. So I knew that was incorrect. And also I hadn't received any emails from uh, you know, reminder emails as you do in most platforms. Yeah. So it was fairly obvious at that stage that I that I've I've been hacked, and uh, yeah, then I came across that Australian um, article in the news about the techniques of these particular hackers, and realised that I've I'm one of the unlucky ones, unfortunately. So now my business is completely frozen. 
it's kind of like if you if you had a physical shop on Patrick Street, it's like someone's come in and just taken a match to it, and it's all gone. You know. Yeah, you just can't get. And trying to get onto a human being in Facebook. Yeah, this is the this is where it becomes awful, as you as you heard Ronan mention. Um, I've tried, I'd say, about four or five different email address support at Facebook. Um, I've tried phone numbers. I've tried web helplines. I called the guards immediately because of the the nature of the the images. Kind of uh, shook me to the core, you know. Um, and yeah, just no one, there's absolutely no way of contacting them or, uh, just anyone, even an email to put you in some type of queue where they could, I'm sure for the people working in the security team up there, it would be a matter of minutes before they realize that clearly it's a hack and, Mm. um, you know, it it could be rectified. If you could only get to talk to one of them, says you, and direct them your way kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I even tried to contact, there's a a security um, firm up in Dublin. They're part of Facebook, so they look after online security. uh, And they they do actually have a phone number on Google. And I called that, and sure enough, it says, this number is incorrect, you know, please check the number and try again. So that's just another channel that's kind of failed me. But... Apart from uh, yeah. the implications for business, I mean, anyone can tell from your accent, uh, you're a New Zealander. And yeah. You've obviously got family and friends back at home. You've lost your access to them now as well. Uh, it's, yeah, that's kind of heartbreaking too, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's my way of contacting family and just sort of keeping up to date with old friends and things like that. So that's been taken down too. Um, and I'm, I'm just kind of at a loss as to what to do next, really. So I'm looking for help. I, I did actually contact somebody within my Irish family here, <laughs> excuse me, who, who worked at Facebook and was quite high up the chain in Facebook, not in security, but did work there. Um, and I still haven't heard back from, from anyone within Facebook. And I, I, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to either. But yeah. um yeah, I really just wanted to make, I know it's like for myself as a wedding photographer and my, my colleagues, videographers, these platforms are so important to our businesses, you know, to, to get us in front of our clientele and mm. um, share what we do. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty kind of devastating where I've, where I've like ended Sean, up with it all. Are you in a position now where like you've got kind of may have work booked in that you can't access your communications with your client? That kind no. Of thing? No, I, like I still have, um, obviously my, my email channels are completely separate. I don't, I don't really conduct business through Facebook. Okay. It's all through. It's a relief. Through, yeah. <laughs> no, I have a website and uh, that's my main kind of shop window. But Facebook is, is the, the most important way, I guess, of kind of um, attracting clients to your website yeah. and, and kind of introducing yourself, really. Um, so it's it's a, it's an absolutely essential part of the cog, you know. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at. So no, I, I haven't lost any business through it, but it, it is going to damage me because I I can't kind of continue any further until I've got it rectified as far as Facebook and Instagram and things, you know. Yeah, and it's like like Ronan said, trying to get onto a, a human being to actually direct them to the right place where they could fix it for you is is damn near impossible. Sean, I wish you well. I hope it works itself out. Um, And I know that there are various types of action that somebody can take.
Uh, yes, you back to the lads there, thanks. 0818 96 96 96. Um, yeah, we got this report at the weekend. We're looking into this. We've asked Boss Aaron um, for a statement. There was Thugs Marwood in Glenmire. Um, the buses were suspended there at the weekend. We got reports and there was widespread social media reports of thugs firing stones at, at buses and so intense did it become at one point that the bus drivers just stopped. They stopped going up there. Uh, it was suspended and we were getting reports about it and people were complaining about it and we did ask Bus Aaron for a statement and I have that statement which I will bring to you uh, in the next hour. But they confirmed that the rear window of a bus serving that route was broken in a stone-throwing incident at 10 past 8 on the 15th of May. Thankfully, nobody was hurt or injured. Gardaí are immediately notified and are investigating. All services were curtailed and resumed the following morning, operating as normal. So that was why, why they took off the buses on the weekend Sunday because some thug had fired a stone at a bus, smashed a window. You can imagine, what must it be like to be sitting inside a bus and going off home when you're about your business and so many people wear headphones on the bus now these days. I do all myself all the time. Imagine that, a stone smashes in the window of the bus and lands in your lap or lands on the floor in front of you and you're showered with glass. What kind of a... What kind of a gal does that anyway? Throws a stone at a bus. And why? Like, 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie. Oldies and Irish on Cork's 96FM is the big Sunday show on your radio. Turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning. Welcome along to the program. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. With Hidden Hearing, tuning you in so you don't miss a thing. And we've been doing it for over 30 years. Hiddenhearing.ie. Cork's 96 FM. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. If you or anyone you know suffers with migraine, you will be interested in our next topic of conversation because it is the scourge of so many people's lives. And it, it, it can just ruin a day, ruin a weekend with no warning. Um, and it's, it can make people very sick and very debilitated. So we'll come back to that in just a moment. But let's look back at that statement we got from Bus Aaron about the buses from Marwood, which we said to you there was a Marwood bus was taken off the route on Sunday, Sunday 15th. And Bus Aaron confirms the rear window of a bus 
serving the 214, Nokraha to CUH, was broken in a stone throwing incident at 8 10 pm on 15th of the 5th. Thankfully, nobody was hurt or injured. Gardaí were notified and they are investigating. All services were curtailed immediately and resumed the following day. It goes on to say, Osirwan does not tolerate any act of aggressive or abusive behaviour towards our staff, customers or property. We continue to invest significantly to deliver our commitment to provide safe and secure environment for all our employees and customers we use our services. We have very few reported incidents of antisocial behaviour. About half of them relate to property damage. Bosirin takes each incident very seriously. All are investigated in liaison with Angarda Shekhana. Vehicles are fitted with CCTV and have direct communications to control. They can alert the supervisor and the Gadi if required. It goes on to say that uh, if you want to report anything to the Gardaí, to the driver, or indeed to a customer care line, you can do that. Uh, 0818-836-611 is that customer care line. And it says, finally, customer research shows 93% of bus air and customers feel safe and secure during their journeys. But there is an ongoing Garda investigation into what happened in Marwood on Sunday evening. Now, something else to do with transport. I will come back to this. In, in a while, but you will have heard or you might have heard in the last few days about there being no catering on the Cork Dublin train and it's not going to be there now until 2023 and a lot of people are not happy with that at all uh, I'll come back to that one but first of all I want to speak with Dr Edward O'Sullivan who's clinical director of the Headache Migraine Clinic at the Department of Neurology at CUH and and Edward just at the weekend we had an incident a migraine invaded one of our own events at home so it can come quickly and it causes chaos. We'll talk about a new pilot scheme in a minute that's been rolled out around the country, a, a kind of a support pathway. But first of all, Dr. O'Sullivan, how common are migraines and what is a migraine? Good morning. Well, good morning. Well, first of all, migraine is the, is the most common of the neurological conditions. It, you know, it, it's, it's primarily a severe headache, but there's a lot of other symptoms as well. It affects uh, 10 to 12 percent of the population and is three times uh, more common in women and often affects uh, people in the prime of their lives in the sense of beginning off in their late teens, early 20s and mm. uh, staying with them throughout their adult lives and then tending to disappear uh, in older age people, let's say in their 50s and 60s. But uh, it's, a con- it's a condition that you know is quite frequent then in terms of attacks. The average patient will get one to two attacks per month. And of course, what differentiates it from other uh, ordinary headaches, let's say, is the severity and the impact it has uh, on the individual. Mm. How can you tell the difference between a bad headache and a migraine? Because, you know, you get a headache and you think, oh, my God, this is this is worse than a normal little ache. Is it a migraine? How can you tell? Well, it, it, first of all, it, it's differentiated clinically <clears throat> based on the, on the symptoms. So there's no test that you can do to diagnose migraine in that sense. In about 20% of migraine patients, they will get what's called aura symptoms prior to the headaches. And the most common aura symptom will be a visual one consisting of, you know, flashing lights, zigzag lines, areas of loss of vision, mm. lasting from anything up to an hour, usually about five uh, to 20 mm. minutes. And then it's often followed by a headache. The headache itself then can vary in location, it can be either one-sided or both sides, but all patients will tend to uh, describe it as being severe. It's a throbbing, pounding, 
uh, pulsating, uh, worsened by movement. And then it's often got the accompanying symptoms of intolerance to light and intolerance to sound and nausea, which frequently leads to vomiting uh, for many patients. And then, of course, when when you're suffering from all these symptoms, the impact is that the patient is generally unable to function yeah. and they need to lie down in a quiet, dark room and attacks can last for anything from four to 72 hours. Yeah, That little flickery thing, it, it's like something annoying you out of the corner of your eye that you know is not there. Is, is that the, one of the signals? That's the early symptom of them. But those patients who've got the aura symptoms, that kind of flickering image, and, and of course, patients know what's coming next. And, and often that's an opportunity to treat the attack early with, with treatments and hopefully abort uh, the development of the de- severe symptoms of headache and the associated uh, like symptoms. Can you stop it at that stage when you see the flicker? <clears throat> well, everybody's, every patient is different. And of course, you know, in terms of management of migraine, uh, you know, it's different treatments will work for different patients. It's unpredictable which treatment will benefit the patient most. So you need to, then we, we get all patients, let's say, with, who suffer from recurrent attacks to keep diaries, looking at treatment options, simple treatments like over-the-counter analgesics such as uh, paracetamol or soluble aspirin mm-hmm. can be very effective if taken early. But however, they don't work on all patients, yeah. uh, and then you're 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 up into the kind of the prescribed medications, and there are a lot of specific migraine therapies uh, for the treatment of the acute attack medications called triptans. And again, it's important, um, irrespective of what you take, to take it early in the attack because that's most likely to benefit patients. Then, whilst if you delay taking it, uh, it's less likely to work. You said that some cases go in a few hours, others can last a while. It can be very debilitating, I suspect, if you get them frequently. Well, again, this is why it's 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 recognised, you know, by the Migrant Association and by Patient Supports Group, just how debilitating it can. It's one of the leading causes of disability worldwide by the World Health Organization in terms of its impact on individuals, in terms of their ability to work, you know, examinations uh, and it's a very controlling disorder if you're not able to manage it and of course not only is the individual attack very debilitating but the frequency in which attacks occur varies quite a lot and quite and a lot of many patients would get very frequent attacks so this can be a very controlling condition on the patient's uh, life yeah yeah is it a genetically caused condition or is it triggered by something in the lifestyle you often hear people saying oh i can't eat cheese it gives me migraines does something like that happen well, it's a combination of things. Certainly there is what we would call a family or a familial predisposition towards the, uh, developing migraine, and you often will see it you, you know, go down through the generations. If one or both of your parents uh, suffer from migraine, then you probably have somewhere in the region of a 25 to 50% likelihood of getting the condition yourself. But there's also quite clearly trigger factors um, associated or triggering individual attacks and making patients susceptible. And I think uh, the most common triggers would be, obviously, it's more it's a condition that's more common in women by three to one and compared to men. And women are very vulnerable to attacks mm-hmm. in around the time of the menstrual cycle, usually just prior to it. Ah. But then there are other trigger factors, such as dietary ones, cheese, as you just mentioned, chocolate, um, and you know, food additives, uh, alcohol, and and then stress itself, change in lifestyle, uh, mm. lack of sleep, overtiredness. So all of these trigger factors uh, are not the cause of your migraine, but they do potentially trigger individual attacks, and right. that's why again, 
you explore these in terms of trying to limit the likelihood of attacks uh, so, occurring. So I guess if you get them frequently, you should possibly try to think, well, is there something I'm doing or I'm eating or I'm drinking or a situation which I find myself that's triggering, you know, and that's that's probably half the half the battle. Now, talk to me about this new support pathway, Doctor. What's that about? <clears throat> Well, it, it's really an integrated care p- plan between primary and secondary care. It's, it's all part of the, the Slauncher Care Project, which we're all from familiar with, looking at, you know, it, within the hospital environment and the neurology departments, we have headache clinics and, you know, they see tend to see the more debilitating end of migraine, um, you, you know, and, and there's also newer treatments available, which are only accessible through uh, appointments uh, in these clinics. Um, and therefore, it's it's a the integrated care pathway enables us that patients who are being seen regularly at clinics can be discharged back into the community if they're doing well, so that their follow up care can be managed uh, within general practice and also within community pharmacies. Uh, and this is where the um, pilot project, uh, which was uh, uh, in in Dublin and in Galway last year, looked at the feasibility of this and and it was very successful um, and it enables then patients to be discharged from clinics and then freeing up you know appointment slots for right. new patients to be seen at the clinic so, so and there'll be so would this be online or something you'd go to a specialist clinic for a normal you now will be able to follow up say with your GP or your pharmacist is that it? Yes, this is it exactly. So that you know, these patients aren't always being brought back to the clinic if they're doing well. Just to you know, to rubber stamp things, it enables them to be followed up in the community and enables the clinic then to be seeing more and more individuals who have got debilitating attacks. How was the feedback on that? I imagine people would like that. You know, being able to go something as convenient as the pharmacy instead of having to wait to get to a clinic. Well, it, 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 yeah, the the pilot project, which was uh, spearheaded by uh, Professor Hardiman in Beaumont uh, and uh, the HSE, you know, was very successful in terms of enabling this to happen. And the feedback, you know, both from the hospital and from the patients was very positive. Lastly, uh, people who suffer from them either occasionally or frequently, what advice would you give? See your GP in the first instance, I suspect. Well, I think anybody who suffers, from, well, first of all, uh, you need to establish a diagnosis. So if patients are having a problem with the management of their headaches and they're affecting their quality of life and their lifestyle, they should certainly see their general practitioner and look at the, you know, is there a need to further investigate these headaches? Number one, you know, do they suffer from a migraine or other headache disorders? So a, a correct diagnosis is always the, the most important jumping off point. And then because it's a recurrent uh, condition, we, we'd encourage patients then to see their GP and uh, keep headache diaries. And then you look at the feasibility and the efficacy of uh, each individual treatment that they may have been prescribed. And then as you outlined yourself, looking and trying to identify and avoid potential trigger factors um, so that you build up a, an individual blueprint for each patient in terms of how migraine affects them and what's okay. make what's going to make it uh, likely to occur and how effective and can, how can they manage it better. Okay, listen, good speaking with you. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Edward O'Sullivan. He's clinical director of the Headache and Migraine Clinic and Department of Neurology at CUH. Uh, thank you very much for that. If you suffer from migraines, you have... You have my best wishes because I wouldn't wish them. I've only ever had two or three in my life and they're awful things, absolutely awful things. They can knock you flat for hours or, or 
days, I think some people get them from. 0818 96 96 96. I, I, th- there's a book you'll take away. Uh, yeah, if, if you are, just think, if you are suffering from migraines, um, and you get a lot of them, I, I'd love to, to talk to you about it. Like, how tough is it? I mean, can you go to something like a party or can you go to work or do you wake up in the morning knowing, shit, sugar, I'm going to have a micro, uh, a migraine today. What, what am I going to do? Do you know? Uh, ooh, how hard is it? It must be very hard to live with them. 0818 96 96 96. I have a book in my hand that you would not think would be a book you would take on your holidays. But it is. It's a book about the pandemic. But it's written like a thriller. And it is a superb production. I've just just about got near the end of it, written by two leading journalists, one from the Irish Independent, one from the Irish Times. It's called Pandemonium, and I'll speak to the authors next. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie. Cork's 96FM. So this book is called Pandemonium, Power, Politics and Ireland's Pandemic by Jack Horgan Jones and Hugh O'Connell. Jack is the Irish Times, Hugh with the Sunday Independent and the Irish Independent. They both join me now. Jack, I'll start with you because I believe you you may need to drop off the call shortly and and that's fine. But what I want to congratulate you both on, guys, is the level of access that you got to the key players here. I couldn't believe it as I was reading through the book, just how how deeply embedded you were able to get with the whole thing. Good morning to you. Good morning to you, PJ. Jack, how did you manage to get people to, to trust you so much writing this book? Uh, well, I suppose it's a combination of a couple of things. And you're right, we did have access to, I mean, basically all the key decision makers on all three sides as we see it of this story you know there's the there's the government the coalition and the HSE and then and then the the guys in Nefes were all very generous and forthcoming with their time and i think that's that's a product of a couple of things on the on the one hand covid and covering covid had really become uh, our stock and trade for uh, over a year before we even sat down to start writing this book it was the only story in town it was on the front page of every newspaper it led every every radio bulletin so we were already deeply entrenched in these worlds and had built up you know contact networks across these these three camps including in, in the political world where, where we were both already operating um, and then I think there's another thing to it as well it's it's a little bit different when you come to write a book you know people people are eager to engage and people are eager to put their own stamp on it because they know that you know it's 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 the definitive version it's the one that's going to live on through history so they're they're willing to open up and they're willing to kind of you know I think be honest and frank and there's certainly a lot of honest and frank discussion of COVID in the book because they know that it's it's gonna it's it's something that's gonna be there for the, the test of time, you know? Mm. You get us an insight into the, the, the key personalities, say the Tony Holohans, the the Paul Reeds, the the, the Stephen Donnellys and the others. You you get insight under their personalities and it's very clear they weren't no no matter what they were presenting to us day to day in terms of bulletins and in terms of press conferences and statements, they didn't always get along. 
I think that's true. Um, and I think that it, in, in some ways it's unsurprising because if you take a step back from this, COVID was the most remarkable thing that certainly happened in our professional lives. And, and I think it'll probably be, at least I hope it is, the, the biggest story that we'll ever cover. You know, this was, this was the entire country shut down for the guts of two years. You know, at no stage between March of 2020 and February of 2022 were there, was there a period without some form of public health restrictions in place. And we had three extraordinarily long and tough lockdowns as well, which made us a bit of an outlier in Europe in terms of just how stringent those public health restrictions were. So I think given the fact that, you know, society was being asked to act in the way it was, it's, it's, it's perhaps not unsurprising that, you know, there were tensions between those camps, you know, on the one hand, the public health advisors who were saying shut it down. On the other hand, the government saying, you know, do we really have to go this far? There are other, there are other countries adopting a, di- a different approach. And while in real time, they would have emphasized that everyone was on the same page and pulled on the green jersey, I think what the, what the book shows and what we tried to depict is that behind the scenes, Things weren't always uh, without without speed bumps and things and there and there were very ugly meetings. Relations did um, pitch to very low points, and there was a lack of trust really that built up across the entire pandemic. And um, the roots for that are are, are complex, but really there, there's one explanation for it, and um, that is that Nefet, a non-elected body, became the kind of preeminent organization for setting and and determining pandemic policy in a way that the government gradually began to feel usurped its own democratic power. Hugh, I'll bring you in this point. What I found a particularly fascinating period to read about was from, say, October 2021, right through October 2020, right through to January of, of 2021, where you had open conflict. It wasn't even concealed. You'd open conflict between Neffet and, say, the likes of Lever Adkar and, and, and the total carnage that emerged over Christmas and, and the New Year, that left everybody scared on all sides, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, look, we, we were obviously, I think everyone knew that, that uh, you know, the government had uh, rejected Neffet advice in October 2020, in early October 2020, and that created somewhat of a schism. It was the first time, really, that the government had rejected the public health advice to lock down for uh, four weeks. And the result of that really and the way in which that advice was conveyed to governments over that, uh, or that, that first weekend in October of 2020 did really serve to um, uh, d- damage the relationship between government and its public health advisors because the government felt that Tony Holland had come back from compassionate leave, had uh, uh, you know convened this emergency NEFIT meeting, the advice from NEFIT leaked, and there was a feeling that the government was kind of being bounced into locking down the country with no prior warning and no sense really that this was coming given that Neffet had met a few days earlier without Holohan and decided to leave the country at level two. And so what you get really is this really ugly meeting on Monday the 5th of October which we go into in great detail in the book where mm-hmm. things are said about Neffet that the, the, the Neffet people in the room aren't too happy about and then you get Liv Radker going on the Claire Byrne show yeah. that evening and, and uh, making this quite pointed uh, remark, which he later expressed some regret for, in fact, he does in the book, um, that you know, no one who was uh, making the decisions on NEFIT or making the recommendations on NEFIT would have to uh, go on the pandemic unemployment payment, for example, because they were all public servants or working mm-hmm. for public bodies. And that obviously neglected the fact that many people on NEFIT, and we, we go into this in, in the book as well, you know, they, they had family members yes. who were going to be affected by the lockdown. So they, they knew full well what the impact of, of lockdown would be. So nonetheless, look, this happens... Uh, and then within days, Leo Bradker is almost has buyer's remorse, really, that, um, you know, given the deteriorating situation with the disease, he writes a piece in, in my own 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Paper the Sunday Independent, where he talks about the need perhaps for a circuit breaker lockdown. And then within about 10, 10, 14 days of that, the government does lock down for for uh, six weeks uh, in the run-up to Christmas. But really, you know, that is done as a kind of a bargain whereby, you know, we lock down for six weeks. That means that we can open up over Christmas. And obviously, you know, the, the COVID doesn't bargain. Yes. Um, and so we, we had a situation where uh, the lockdown happens, but there was very much a view that the, the, the state would have to reopen over Christmas. Uh, the government pushed ahead with that. Uh, they, again, went against, I suppose, an effort advice to keep hospitality closed. They felt that they had some leeway within an effort advice mm-hmm. to open hospitality, not do as much on household visits over Christmas. They did a little bit of both. And the result really was, um, uh, you know, uh, carnage is the word you use yeah. there, but certainly, you know, case numbers taking off over Christmas 2020, hitting unprecedented mm-hmm. levels. Now, of course, they hit much higher levels in, mm-hmm. in Christmas 2021. But the results of that combined with a uh, new, uh, more infectious variant, Alpha, uh, resulted in the health system yeah. coming close to collapse in January 2021, which again, we, we go into in the book in, in some detail, the extent to which we, that was the, the moment really throughout the entire two years, the, the closest we came yeah. to, to complete collapse of the health system. And you, and you, cover, you cover that. It's, it's very dramatic the way you, you write that, that element of it, guys. One thing, one short passage in the middle of that stopped me and I went back and I reread it. You have a very short, sort of paragraph a bit about a guy or a patient pre-ventilation and how they, what they go through. I think that's one of the most stark yeah. paragraphs. It's just a paragraph. In, in, in the whole book, what they go through before before the moment of ventilation. Another thing you cover in an awful lot of detail, um, and I'm, I guess I'm asking you both as political hacks now whether whether there'll be a comeback on this. You go into extraordinary detail on the the, the nursing homes at the start of it all. Jack, do, do you think that when we when when all this is eventually over, we will have people will have questions to answer about how the nursing homes were dealt with? I do, and I think it's important that we identify the format or the forum within which those questions might be answered. And I think that the government really needs to kind of pull its socks up when it comes to, you know, sketching out how any kind of post-crisis inquiry is going to work. You know, they say that they don't want a witch hunt, which is fair enough, and I don't think anyone does want a witch hunt. But nonetheless, as we detail in the book, you know, in the first wave of COVID, uh, a thousand people, give or take, died in nursing homes. Those those are a thousand of the most vulnerable people who live in the state. And they did so partially because I think there was an, an, a misunderstanding of the kind of crisis that COVID would cause in the country. When people looked 
at China and when they looked at Italy, they saw overflowing hospitals or emergency hospitals being built at very short notice in the case of China. And they kind of presumed that this would be, that ground zero for COVID in Ireland would be within the hospital system. So there was this enormous focus on clearing out people from the hospital mm. system, repairing beds. And that led to a lot of discharges into nursing homes. And the, the book details goes into some detail, uh, revealing reports and testimony from uh, senior people who believe that, you know, uh, COVID was brought into the nursing homes that way. I think that that what really uh, magnifies the stain that is the nursing homes experience, though, is the fact that it happened again within yes. less than a year. Yes. There was an, yeah. there was another thousand people, give or take. Again, these aren't precise numbers, but there was another thousand people who died in January and February uh, 2020, uh, 2021, yeah. which, of course, you know, was just on the verge of widespread inoculation and followed that quote-unquote meaningful Christmas that has become so deeply burned into everyone's consciousness. So I do think that there's questions to, to ask and be answered. I do think it's appropriate that there are, that, that a form is identified in which that can take place. And I do think that we need to look at the relationships between things that, that happened, like that big conflagration in October, the decisions that were taken for the meaningful Christmas and the fallout, which again, ground zero for that was in the nursing homes in the early part of last year. Yeah. Something that that happens frequently throughout the book, Hugh, as well, is you'll quote somebody, you'll quote an incident that occurred, and then you will say that that person speaking a year later might have said something mm. different. It's obvious that throughout the course of this, all of the main players, with, with some may- exceptions maybe, possibly the exception of Tony Hulahan, who doesn't seem to have changed his mind very often, but nearly all of the main players have at one point changed their mind very much about what they said. Uh, y- yeah, I mean, th- th- I suppose th- they, they have in some respects. I mean, in other respects, they haven't. I mean, you know, there is a view uh, that Tisha holds quite firmly that... Um, what happened over Christmas 2020 wasn't uh, as a result necessarily of government decisions. And he's very much of the view that Alpha, the Alpha variants uh, mm. drove COVID wild um, and drove case numbers wild over Christmas. And he cites, you know, for example, conversations he would have had with Angela Merkel where she's uh, pointing at the uh, at the graph and, and saying, look, you know, Ireland's case numbers go up and it's it's the Alpha variant and it's not any decisions that the government made in respect of of hospitality uh, over over that period, um, but equally on the Neffet side, as you say, Tony Holland is not one to change his mind uh, on these things, and he has, holds a very firm view as regards the advice given and the if, if the extent to which he felt government took that advice on board. I mean, I think one of the things that we um, we explore in detail in the book that I think a lot of us would have missed at the time was the extent to which Tony was pushing for. Uh, level five lockdown from uh, up to you know a few days before Christmas, That's right. uh, but actually that that full level five lockdown, the full uh, implementation of all restrictions under the level five uh, plan, uh, did not come about until December thirtieth, um, which really in COVID time is the loss of several days and the uh, deterioration of the disease at much greater levels and the increase in cases to much greater levels than, than might have happened uh, had the government locked down sooner. Now, of course, you know, against that is the need for people to, to see their families over Christmas and the need for people to have some sense of a, of a some semblance of a Christmas. Um, but, but clearly, you know, people 
speaking at a year's remove, as you say, we, we, we do that a lot in the book because obviously we would have spoken to people almost a year on from when those decisions were taken. Some do express regret as, as, to, as to what happens. Uh, and indeed, Neffet are of the view that, and senior people on Neffet whom we spoke with, do feel as if they perhaps didn't make the case. Some people now, not all of them, mm. do feel that, that you know, the case wasn't made strong enough to government in the run-up to that Christmas um, to kind of say, look, you cannot open hospitality, um, mm. notwithstanding the fact that they, they, that officially that was the very clear advice. Let's, let's, I, just before I let you go, I want to compliment you both for one thing in particular. This could be a very turgid, heavy, hard news read, but it's not. You've managed to write the book in a very, it's a page turner, lads. It really is a page turner. How did you, how did you manage to do that from such a heavy story into <laughs> such a, a, a easy readable book that I would literally take to the beach? Hugh? Yeah, I, I suppose. Uh, well, oh, Jack, you got I think, I, <laughs> I, I suppose that, I mean, it helps that the two of us are kind of nerds on this stuff. And, and when you're when you're a bit of a nerd and you find something exciting, you can you can maybe pick out the threads that that are genuinely exciting and try and kind of, you know, big them up and, 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 and make them interesting, make them interesting to, to, to the, the lay person or the non-nerd as well. And then the other thing as well that I think really worked for us is we were able to to take a full look at that entire two year expanse. You know, we started writing the book in summer last year. We finished writing it, you know, just the week after Neffet was disbanded. So really it's the full scope of that kind of Neffet era. And because we were taking that that step back and that overall view, we were able to say, right, okay, even though this may have been disorientating at the time, even though it may have seemed overwhelming at the time, here are the moments that mattered. Here's what really mattered. And here's the relationships between those moments and the threads that run between them. And here's something that we hope will help people, readers, make sense of what just happened in a truly extraordinary period. Yeah. One particular element of it, Hugh, that I found most readable was the senior civil servants, the Martin Frasers of this world. Um, one individual you refer to this swears like a sailor. I won't use the name on the air. But that's the kind of element that makes the book. It's an insight into the people we never see, too, which I think is part of it. Was that deliberate, Hugh? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to name that individual. It's in the book. Robert Watt uh, is, <laughs> is viewed by colleagues as someone who swears like a sailor. He's the, the sec general of the Depart- Secretary General of the Department of Health now and was the Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform at the, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And obviously, he's a, some, someone who has come, uh, become a bit of a public figure uh, over the last few, uh, over the last couple of years, I suppose, but for, for a number of reasons, which we won't get into now. But there, you're right. I mean, there are other civil servants, I think, kind of, um, you know, Martin Fraser, the Secretary General of the Department of the Seashore, perhaps less well known, uh, but someone who is a massive influence across governments. He's the most powerful civil servant in all the land. He's just recently left that position now and he's going to become the uh, Irish ambassador to the UK later this year. Um, but he commands an, an enormous amount of respect from fellow civil servants, from politicians, from people on NEFID, from people in the HSC, because he is the man really who pulls the levers of government in such a way as to deliver um, the political priorities of government and the prior- the policy priorities and the programme for government. Uh, and at a time of, of the pandemic, I suppose, he was a, a, able to kind of effectively marshal all of the agencies of state around uh, responses that needed to happen. So, you know, take a, an example of that, the vaccine programme, he decides that, the, you know, that there needed to be some sort of overarching high-level task force to deliver a mass vaccination program that would aim to inoculate every citizen in the state, every adult citizen in the state against COVID-19. 
And he does that. Uh, and he calls up Brian McGrath, who becomes the chair of the vaccine task force. He says, look, I need you to pull this together. And that's what happens. And a, a successful vaccination program is delivered. The HSC plays a massive part in that. But kind of behind all of that is is the, the, the man who we refer to in the book as the unknown man because of a, a famous picture where he's right. captioned as the as, as an unknown man, where in, in fact he, he wields more power than certain members of the cabinet, as Simon Goldmead admitted to us in, in the book. So yeah. we did try and paint a picture of these these individuals who the public might not necessarily know about, but who were really important when it came to responding to COVID-19 over the last two years. Well, that's in my head as I came to the end of the book. I was trying to uh, draw up a cast for the television miniseries that could well <laughs> follow this. I, my congratulations to you both. It's it's a superb achievement. Uh, I've, I've read, read, read you your books extensively in your news coverage, but to have it come together in such a readable book is, is, is great. Hugh O'Connell and Jack Horgan-Jones, the authors of Pandemonium, Power, Politics and Ireland's Pandemic. And trust me, you would think, I wouldn't take a book on a pandemic on my holidays. You will, and you'll be stuck in it. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on Side. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. One of the most influential songwriters and recording artists working today, Donovan returns to the Everyman stage, playing all of his hits including Catch the Wind, Colours and the Hurdy Girl. Man. The show takes place on Sunday, May 29th. Access all areas. The Sultans of Pain plan a return to Cork for a special one-night-only performance at Cork Opera House on Saturday, February 11th. Tickets are now on sale from corkoperahouse.ie. Access all areas. You can contact us here at Access All Areas if you have a show, play or exhibition or any live streaming events by emailing us on aaa at 96fm.ie. Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. Cork's 96FM. We had a voice message in. You can always do that if you want to 083 396 96 96, a WhatsApp voice note. Just following on from our conversation about migraines. I suffer from migraines there nearly weekly at this stage, and by God, it's the biggest throbbing sensation. It's like on your temples. And, um, Jeez, I have to turn off lights, close curtains, even if someone talks, oh, my head just throbs. Absolutely horrific things. Wouldn't wish him a vomit worst enemy. Wow. Thank you. The Giving for Living Radiothon, May 26th to 28th. Only on Cork's 96FM. I'll be there. Yeah, just a week from tomorrow now. We are from Thursday, rather. We kick off the Cork's 96FM Giving for Living Radio on May 26th, raising funds for Cork Cancer Services. We need your help with this. It's going to be big. It's going to be enormous. But we need your help. You need to host a coffee break for us. Do it at home. Do it in the garden. Do it at work. Do it wherever. Get a change collector box or just grab a bucket and fill it up with change. And all that change that you weren't spending during the pandemic, it's in drawers, it's down behind the settee, it's in pockets of jeans that are sitting in the wardrobe that you haven't worn in a long time. Drag out those coins, stick them into a collector box. On Friday, special day, Friday 27th, very special day, whatever jersey or whatever sport Whatever team you support, I don't care if it's Doncaster Rovers' second team, just get out there and put on your jersey, wear it to work, to school, to home, 
on Friday, May 27th. That's a great day we're going to have this year. There are all sorts of fundraising ideas and you can get a fundraising pack through our website, 96fm.ie. And join us for the Cork's 96FM Giving for Living Radiothon Thursday morning week. We're only a week and a bit away. May 26th to 28th, only on Cork's 96FM. Just look at the calendar. And if you have a leaving cert, or a junior cert, but if you have a leaving cert in the house, you will know it's three weeks tomorrow. Oh my God, three weeks tomorrow, the 8th of June, is the start of the Leaving Cert. And Eileen Healy from Jumpstart Your Confidence, you put up a a very important post, Eileen, uh, addressed at parents of exam students, and a very simple motto that we would like to see everybody take on board. Your best is good enough. With three weeks to go, you can't tell them that often enough, can you? Good morning. Hi, good morning, PJ. How are you? Um... No, listen, and I suppose it's a conversation we need to be having from a very early age, really. But look, here we are, three weeks to go. I suppose what I kind of find with the kids I'm working with and the exam students I've worked with in the past is we just, as parents and siblings, we need to just be very careful, I think, of the conversation that we're having over the next few weeks. You know, the comparisons putting the expectation on, presuming they're going to get a certain grade, a certain result. You know, the system we're in, we all know there's a lot of flaws in there. It doesn't suit every kid. It's very much tunnel visioned to an academic child. And in my opinion, academia is one strength. Our kids have hundreds of strengths, but unfortunately they're judged very much on this one one. And that leaves a lot of our kids feeling less than and not good enough. Now, I'm well aware I've put, put three of mine through the Leaving Cert and another one to go, but, um, you know, it's a tough time and it's a really tough time within the home. It's a tough time for parents. So my advice to parents is there's a few things. One, if you have younger kids, try and organise playdates, try and keep the noise level down. Um, you know, just give the kid a bit of space. This, another one would be just watch your reaction as a parent. I know it's not easy, believe me, by any stretch of the imagination, but I feel it's important for all of us to remember um you know, the kids' behaviour, is it's there for a reason. It's nothing to do with us most mm. of the time. If mm. they're stressed, if they're under pressure, if they're getting grief in school, no matter what's going on, their safe place to react will always be at home mm-hmm. with the people who are going to love them no matter what. So, you know, a deep breath, walk out of the room, try not to throw the reaction in, and it really does solve a massive, or stop at least a huge mm. amount of arguments, unnecessary stuff, you know, Be- that they just don't need at the moment. Because over the next couple of weeks, tempers can get short, and it's it's not personal, it's just there's a lot of stress going around. One thing, I remember we had a leaving starts in, in our house a few years back, and I remember the one thing, that when she came out of the room, or out of the study space, she didn't want to talk about it. She wanted to come out, have a bit of food, watch telly for an hour. Didn't want to talk about the exam because that was for the bedroom, that was for the study room. It's hard as a parent to respect that. Well, we must, mustn't we? Ah, yeah. And, you know, I think between the study periods and when they come out of the actual exam in three weeks' time, you know, the last thing they want at any of these points is to be questioned by us. They know what they have to do. And I know, look, some parents could be listening saying, oh, well, God, I wish she'd do a little bit more. I wish she'd do anything at all. But at this point, they've done what they've done. You know, there's no 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 level of berating that was going to change that. But it certainly, it triggers them a bit. It can trigger some kids more than others, but mm. they just don't want it. Just try and let them off. And, you know, if they're sporty kids, let them go off to their sport. Let them play their games. Let them go for a run. If they've done their study and they're on their phone, let them off. 
It's mm. like we'd have gone on the phone for hours long ago just to chill and, you know, discuss it with our friends and whatever. Let them off. Mm. It's only a few weeks. But you do have, as a parent, you have massive control in the atmosphere of the house over the next few weeks. And there's other ways of showing that you're caring and that you understand. You know, I think even just leaving a treat in the study room, you know, putting a note in there, sending them a nice, nice text during the day. Mm. It doesn't have to always be verbal because sometimes if they're on high emotion, the verbal word can actually just get that response that mm. can go into an argument straight away. Can we but not have the thousand the, questions, Dad? Yeah, oh, please, like, just let them off, really. And I think I, I can talk about parents putting pressure on kids and having expectations that, that are too high. And yes, that does happen. But the kids, unfortunately, you know, they put it on themselves as well, massively so. Mm. And, you know, I work, I suppose, an awful lot with kids who some of them wouldn't be as academic as others, but yet would put that pressure on and would feel under savage pressure from peers, from teachers, from home. You know, siblings got better results, cousins are doing brilliant, feeling that they need to live up to something. I mean, in the world we live in, PJ, I suppose I'm a firm believer if my kids are happy and they're doing their bit, I am very, very grateful. You know, there's so many kids struggle around this time and actually, unfortunately, probably from junior start all the way up with a lot of anxiety and a lot of mental health issues because of this pressure that's been put on from whoever and sometimes, yes, themselves about exams. But it's only one part of their life, you know. Yes. I mean, we all know people who might not have been the top of their class in school, but they went on to have wonderful, happy successful mm -hmm. lives themselves. So mm -hmm. I just think we can put too much emphasis on this one area. They're getting it from every corner at the moment. They really don't need to get it from home. And you know, it's true. And I know say, it's hard. It's true, Eileen, isn't it? For the most part, and we put that in as a little proviso, most of it, they'll be grand. They'll be fine. They will be grand. They'll they will be, be grand. Absolutely grand. I mean, I have worked with kids. I've met them five, six, seven years, eight years later. You know, and were they, some of them were the academic? Absolutely not. But they were amazing kids. They were sociable, they were kind, they were empathetic, they were people's people. People will find their space if they're allowed to do things the oh, way yeah. they know they should oh, be yeah. doing it. Absolutely. Let you know When they find who they are, they're the kids who are going to be okay. It's yeah. the kids trying to be something for somebody else are the kids who will struggle. And believe me, they will at some point really struggle because they're doing all this for someone else. It has to, you know, they need mm -hmm. to do it. Now, don't get me wrong, PJ, I'm not saying they don't need to push or shove in the direction. Of course they do. Yes. And whether it's bribery or whether it's whatever it may be, whatever works, absolutely. Some of them will need a serious shove. But for those who you know, you know, once they, I just think to try and reinforce, once they do their bit, mm. they're trying, they're making an effort. We have to acknowledge that that has to be enough. Mm. I have kids, honest to God, in tears in my room saying, but I know they expect me to get blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to do it. Mm. And that's just very sad. You know, and I suppose sometimes maybe to our detriment as parents, maybe we want our kids to do the things we didn't do. And yeah, we want the best for them. But is what we presume to be the best, is that really the best for them? Yeah. And that's a question maybe we need to ask ourselves just a little bit more often too. All right, Eileen, always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Eileen Healy, jumpstartyourconfidence.com. And I think coming up to Leaving Search, I think of our own house, 
and I think of my daughter who will slaughter me for mentioning her but at the time she would have openly admitted she wasn't the most academic child she didn't want to know about academic stuff other than what she had to know and then she went on to college and she didn't like that at all and then she went down another path entirely having done quite well in college despite herself she went down another path entirely and now at the age of 24 she is one of the happiest young people that I know they will all be fine they will be grand thanks Eileen 0818 96 96 96 can we just talk the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie Question 9. D-Day's associated with what war? World War II. And who wrote the book The Old Man in the Sea? Ah, oh, stop it, Willa. Willa, Willa Wong, your surname. Willa Willa, Willa Wonka? Willa Dwarf. Yeah, Willa Wonka. Willa Wonka. Willa Wonka. Stop, boy, Willa. We were asking you questions, you weren't waterboarding yet. Casey and Ross in the morning with Noel DC Cars Blackpool. Exclusively Skoda in the city. Find your next car online at noeldc.com. Open 24-7. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818-969696. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Ah, uh, here's a sad little post from the Munster Lost and Found Pet Helpline. Put this on their social and someone got on to us and asked us to mention it. On the Sarsfields Road, a mama duck crossing the road with her babies. One of the cutest things you'll ever see is a proud mama duck with her little babies waddling along behind her. She was knocked down as she was crossing Sarsfields Road and she was killed. And the little ducks have, as little ducks will when their mama isn't with them anymore, they, they don't know where to go, what to do. So if you see them, little cute little ducklings, little balls of fluff on two legs, um, you can contact the monster lost and found people at 86 and there is some help at hand. Okay, that's Little Ducklings. Brown at Sarsfields Road, they'll be looking lost and very confused. Little balls of fluff on two legs. And their mom has been killed. She was knocked down by a car. That's very sad. Um, 086-211-2850 is the number to call if you want to get some help. For them. I also want to read, before I go to talk to James in just a second, I want to read this one that came in to us about the refreshments on the train because I'll come back then to the statement. Um, and I love the train up and down to Dublin. I, I take the bus or the train. I do love the train. Um, but it's nice to get a coffee and a sambo or a cake or a Kit Kat and a cup of tea or something on the, on the train. And you haven't been able to. It was taken off. Service was taken off. During COVID, there was no catering or anything like that during during COVID. 
But we got this call that said on the 25 past 9 train to Dublin last Saturday, there was a man with a disability who was clearly uncomfortable because of the heat on board. He asked the staff if they had any water. Staff said there was no refreshment available on the train. They went looking to see if they could help him, fair play to them. Nothing happened for a while, but eventually a fellow passenger gave the man a drink of water. Granted, a lot of people had brought their own refreshments onto the train, but for those who forget or who aren't able to organise such a thing, it seems an unnecessary difficulty. This caller was told that the provision of refreshment was curtailed during COVID, and that's as it was. But surely we're well out of that now. Could you possibly get onto Irish Rail to know when it'll return? and if they could have some special provision for those most in need in the meantime. Well, the news from Irish Rail on that is not good, I'm afraid. I'll bring it to you in a while. They did come back to us uh, confirming what had come out in the press release, but they, they, there's no prospect of, of catering on the train in the near future, put it that way. But uh, that's it seems to be the, the, the message, if you're going on a train, particularly Cork to Dublin, I can only speak for that one, if you're going on a train, bring your own bottle of water, bring a bar of chocolate or a packet of crisps or a packet of biscuits or a sandwich or something, because there's nothing on board. 0818 96 96 96. I will come back to that. James, you were listening to us talking about uh, people with arthritis and having to get hips replaced. We were talking to Tori about her recent hip replacement. Uh, you have arthritis in both your hips and both your knees one hip very bad but you're going to have to go up north you think to get surgery good morning to you good morning pj yeah that's that's correct um i think my only option now i've been hanging around for two years now with this uh, since it was diagnosed and i think my only option is is to travel up to belfast yeah and that's up in the bus, isn't it? And you stay over and you have your replacement and it's a few days and that's the bus that goes from, from Cork, isn't it? You can go up on... Yeah, it's uh, Michael Collins, TD, who's organised that. Um, he calls it the Belfast or Blind Bus cause I, because I think it's mainly for cataracts. That's right. But there are also people going up to get their hips replaced either on the bus or under their own steam as far as I understand things. Now, you'd be a public patient um, and you're on a waiting list. You're deemed urgent, so one would think you'd be looked after quickly, but not the case. No, no, I found out my GP's been trying to bump me up to another waiting list and I, and I finally got onto the urgent one, but in the letter it told me that that's um, a three-year waiting list. What? Three so years? So that's urgent. Yeah. I think there's three lists. I was on the lower one. That now I'm on the middle one, which is the urgent one, and there's one above that, which I don't know, super urgent or something. And how much um, how much discomfort are you in on an ongoing basis? Um, a lot, I suppose. To 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 sum it up briefly, yeah, it's just um, walking around is difficult. Driving, you know, getting in and out of the van. Um, is that as as the person I can't remember her name. Sorry, who spoke the other week about getting her Tory. her young daughter to put socks? Yes, sorry to put um, her socks on for her things like you know that's that's very difficult to manage as well. So I related to that immediately. What age are you? Um, it's a thing you don't think about when your hips are fine, you know. Yeah. What age are you, mate? Uh, Fifty-eight. Okay. Okay. That's that's young to be so crocked, as it were. With your hips. Yes, uh, yeah. 
So you need it may one. be uh, it may be playing too much football. I don't know when I was younger. <laughs> That's what I like to think. Yeah, and like you, you're caring for for your mom, so you can't exactly get away for too long, or you you have to kind of set aside time if you're going to do this and recover. Correct. Yes. Um, well, at the moment, my unfortunately, my mother suffered. I was caring for my mother. Um, with the help of my sister, but my mother suffered a stroke at the end of January, and then she was back at my. She's gone back to my sister's house because her care levels were higher. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, she's in CUH at the moment because she's uh, got some sort of bug. But we're hoping to get her home again this week. Okay. So I'm helping my sister. Okay. okay. Uh, my sister trying to juggle her work uh, and you know how long she'll be allowed to continue remote working. Yeah. So there's all kinds of issues related to this that you don't imagine, what, you know, when you get the diagnosis, of first of all. And you were saying that this urgent list that they've put you on now, that's a three-year wait. How quickly, have you looked into how quickly you might be seen if you went up north? Um, well, the last, if I, it's, I'm partly kicking myself, if I could, uh, <laughs> if because I hung around, I think I would have been seen within three months if I'd done it a while ago. Uh, the last time I called them, which was about a month ago, there's a five-month waiting list. Five months is a bit shorter than yeah. three years. Yeah, definitely. So I'm actually going to finally ring today to try to get it organised because I can't really hang around any any longer with it. And does it work the same way as the cataracts do? In that you will be able to go up. You obviously you'll have to you'll have to pay, which I don't know how much a hip costs. But you'll be able to. Will you get the reimbursement then? You get most of it back. My understanding is it costs around um, 13,000 euros. Um, you end up paying a around 1,000, maybe slightly over, and the HSE refunds the, the balance. Yeah. In fairness, like when you think about it too, isn't that the, the HSE kind of, kind of admitting we can't manage? I suppose so, yeah. And, and I mean, I have every sympathy for... for um, understaffing and so on in the in the HSE but it does seem crazy that people are having to travel or maybe even people don't know it took me over a year to find out that this initiative existed because my sister heard via a friend that uh, who <laughs> who heard Michael Collins TD speaking so mm. you know it's a roundabout way I heard how, um, how would you go I about would, it, do you think? So, I, have you been on to Michael and the the other lad that's running the bus, like Ben Dalton O'Sullivan and Carrie Glenn? How, how, how do you go about it? Do you just... I can't, yeah, you contact Michael directly. I, I It was um, a case of emailing and calling and just, you know, waiting until he, he had a space. And then he called me back directly and he, he's brilliant. And I haven't spoken to the other man that you mentioned um, but I have spoken to uh, an assistant of his called Margaret, whose second name I forget, okay. unfortunately. But also, she she's brilliant as well. They're, they're so friendly mm. and so helpful. So you'll contact the North, get your appointment, and then you contact the Michael Collins or Ben or whatever. You get your bus, and now obviously it's not like the it's not like the cataracts in that you go up one morning and come down two days later, you'll be laid up for a day or two with the hip, but it's a similar system. That's right. That's right. I think it's, I think it's two, two days or maybe three with COVID. 
sure. uh, because they have to do COVID check. But um, I mean, the way I've gone about it is I, I rang Michael Collins first. Uh, then he gave me, or his, uh, the person that helps him, Margaret, gave me information um, about the Kingsbridge Hospital in Belfast. Mm-hmm. I contacted them, um, and I had made an appointment at one stage, which I had to cancel because of uh, another wave of COVID. I, I didn't want to risk it because my mother was still at home at that stage. Um, so I, I was going to get up and running, if you pardon the pun, but hopefully <laughs> I will soon. Yeah, and, yeah. you're you're light-hearted about it. In fairness, dear, but it must get you down at times too. It does, it does, because I used to, you know, even though I'm 58, I still used to enjoy kicking a football around with with uh, nephews and nieces and that. Um, so I can't obviously well, can't know, do that. 58's the new 38, mate. You know that, don't you? Well, this is it. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> I don't look it though. The way I walk, I certainly don't look it. Whatever about. Well, you know, give else. yourself a, give yourself a few months, and you'll be you'll be just fine. Do you know what you do, James? Would you would you keep in touch with us and let us know how all this goes? I will do for and, sure. And, and if and, you do and decide just... to make the journey, if you do decide to make the journey, uh, we'd love to talk to you both sides of it. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I will be. So I'll I'll definitely keep in touch. And just one other thing uh, for anybody in the same boat, I forgot to mention that. You need a letter from your GP. You need to choose a surgeon at Kingsbridge and you need a letter from your GP before you go up there. Yeah. Okay. So, but your GPs will know about this. All right. James, thank you and good luck and keep in touch with us because we'd like to follow this up with you. And it's come to the point now, and to be fair to Michael Collins and indeed young Ben Dalton O'Sullivan, who I met actually, I met Ben at a funeral of all of all places to meet him i met him at the funeral of my friend john lennon uh, very early in the new year and he was thanking us for all the publicity we give uh, to the bus um and and talking about the bus and they were trying to start it out that would break would brexit have an effect on the bus thankfully not thankfully not but that's going on it's a huge success that that bus, the cataract bus, but hip replacement bus as well. I think. Now, Deirdre, you're also time, you're also on a, on an urgent list. How long are you going to be waiting? Morning. Hello. Hi. Oh, sorry, PJ. Hi, okay. PJ. Uh, yeah, it's over, t- over two years. Since, it was two years in April. Right. I'm waiting to see the surgeon, right. and I was told I'm on the very urgent list. <laughs> and then last year, I fell down the stairs tore the cartilage of my knee and that's gone onto the waiting list now as well. So you need a hip and, and a knee now at this stage, do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How are you? No, are you I, crocked? Like, are, you, are you munching oh, painkillers yeah. or what are you doing? I mean, my, my hip happened 10 years ago. But at the time, nobody would listen to me. No doctors, no physios, nobody would listen to me. They kept saying, no, it's your back, it's your back, it's your back. Mm. And 2019, I had to have a CT scan and they discovered the hip. And I said, thank uh, God at last. Yes. <laughs> yes. That doesn't suit me any good. A good, a good chiropractor would have spotted that early. They do no, that. Was, I was going to a chiropractor at the time, and he kept saying it was my back. Well, did he? <laughs> Crikey, altogether. My goodness me. There you oh. go. They all and thought it was your. Constant pain. Yeah. Constant, yeah. struggle getting your socks and things on. It's, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Would you, have, going would you take a notion of going up the north if you could? I couldn't afford it. No yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about it, but then I said, "God, no, I couldn't draw that on me." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know, because I know that, and um, 
talking to the, the people who organise it, some credit unions now, for example, I wouldn't be naming any, some credit unions now, when they know you're going on the bus, yeah. will actually lend you the money because they, they, yeah. they know that you're, they're going to get it back quick smart. Yeah, yeah but you have to um, be assessed first by the HSEC. Are you, are you entitled to it? Mm. To yeah. get it back. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I don't know. So, how long do you think you'll be waiting now? I'll probably did it. Maybe it's PJ. Ah, stop. <laughs> You're a young woman. I'm 62. <laughs> 62 is the new 42. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you'll be, be back. Listen, get, you'll get something. Well, there you go. You Get yourself sorted. You'll be back out clubbing. I promise you. Oh, Jesus. Oh, no clubbing for me, PJ. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just like to be able to get back out and do a decent walk and get back to the gym. I know. I love the gym, but mm. I can't go now. Can you not walk at all, though? Can you just... A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. I'd take the dog for a walk down the park and the community park and back up again. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's about it. Yeah, there's loads of people out there on, on lists, lists as long as you're arm. Thank you, Deirdre. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. I didn't even hear that. That's that's apparently true. I, I've not heard a, um, a credit union actually confirm it, but that's what I was told. That there are some credit unions now are so in tune with this cataract bus or hip replacement bus that they will lend you the money um, or a good chunk of it to go up north because they know that everything going according to plan with the HSE, you'll be getting that money back to them quick, smart. Carla says, I have two sisters. Both needed hip replacements. They were in agony, and they needed them. Ended up borrowing 10,000 each for the operation. One had it in the bonds, the other in the South Infirmary, privately. So it seems to be kind of the going rate, different hospitals. Another note is that with the UK out of the EU... It's both harder to organise private treatment in the UK, which some people still do, and also the state seems reluctant to defer operations onto there, even though there is a mechanism still to get treatment in the EU. They do seem to be managing it with this uh, cataract bus. Um, We might catch up with one or two of the organisers of that over the next while, see if Brexit is a problem still. But I, do, I wouldn't want to be drawing Brexit discussions on me again. That's the only problem. Just getting back to the poor misfortunate orphan ducklings who were r- running around looking for their mammy on the Sarsfields Road. Someone else rang and said, "With no, have due regard to road safety here. Uh, if you're in the area, have a look at the drains on the side of the road or on private property. Uh, if mammy isn't around for some reason, the ducks will seek them out. And they'll fall down into a grating because they only they can they can hear running water presumably, and they'll seek out water. Happened in Shandon Street a few years ago, and we didn't know where they'd gone at first. So they fall down a drain. Yeah, that might be worth. But be careful. That's a dangerous road out there. Very dangerous road. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. I'll give you the response that the Irish Rail gave us uh, to the query about catering. I'll give it to you next. It's not good news. There'll be no catering on the train for months to come. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie. Every year, you join us to support a very worthy cause. And each time, we're astonished by your amazing generosity. If you need a light to shine. 
96 FM Giving for Living Radiothon returns May 26th to 28th for Cork Cancer Services. And once again, we're asking you to include us in your diary. Include us in your diary. Start thinking now about fun ways to fundraise. You could also host a coffee break or fill one of our change collector boxes. I'll be everything you want to I'll be there. The Giving for Living Radiothon. Supporting Cork Cancer Services. May 26th to 28th. Only on Cork's 96FM. Erin Rodair and uh, Barry Kenny uh, to Irish Rail came back to us uh, in response to that query. And he said to us, since the lifting of face covering regulations in February 2022, Rail Gourmet, that was their company, Rail Gourmet, has not been able to resume services primarily due to the challenge in staffing issues and significant additional costs. As a result, uh, the contract with Rail Gourmet has been terminated by agreement and catering services will now remain suspended. The company said it plans to move quickly to commence the process of tendering for a new catering contract. So Rail Gourmet, which was the company that operated catering on the train, that hasn't that company has not been able to resume services for whatever issues it has. Therefore, by agreement, the contract has been has been terminated. They're looking for a new catering supplier now. And Barry sent us a link. There was a link supplied to an an Aaron press statement, and it said that we will quickly commence the process to tender a new catering contract. However, this will mean catering services are unlikely to be available on board until at least early 2023. We apologise for the inconvenience and we look forward to the resumption of the onboard catering as soon as possible. Many of our intercity stations have existing retail and catering facilities available for customers and Airroad Erin will work with CIE property in the interim to further enhance, where possible, station-based retail and catering options for customers. I wonder what that means. I really do wonder what that means. Does it mean? Because I know in Dublin, our Dublin, our Houston station in Dublin, there's a great big supermax, and you see people with sacks of supermax dragging it onto the train, and they've sandwich shops, and you see people going with rucksacks full of stuff for a trip to Cork. Um, there were nice catering services in Cork as well, but no catering on the train until at least 2023. That's what we're hearing. 0818969696. Now, yesterday we were talking to the good people from HUG, uh, which is the uh, support group, community charity for people uh, bereaved by suicide. And they have a group in Cork, a successful group in Cork. The first time we ever spoke to HUG on the opinion line, they were looking to get a group together in Cork. Now they have that group together and they meet quite regularly and they're looking to form a second group, or maybe even a third group. We had a big response to that, prompted a call from other people like Christine. Christine, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Tell me your story. You're, you got involved with HUG. I did. I got involved with HUG over, just over a year ago. And um, to be honest, it's been a bit of a, a lifesaver. Yeah. What happened to you? Well, on the 20th of February 2018, my 15-year-old son, Adam, took his own life. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so devastating, obviously. 
So, yeah, so for the past four years, I suppose I've been trying to pick myself up and trying to find sense to the madness, as they would say. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I did go down other routes of counselling and stuff, and they do help. Mm. But when I got in contact with HUG, and um, they're just an amazing group. Mm. They really are. What was the difference between what HUG do and what others do? I think I got a sense yesterday from talking to them that because all of their counsellors and volunteers and facilitators have been through it themselves, it takes it to another level. Is that what you found? Yes, that's what I found. You're speaking to people who understand. Understand exactly. Unfortunately, they're also going through processes and everything. And when you can speak openly and unjudgmentally and safely and you just have that connection Mm. that people understand. You never do though fully, do you? I bet you you don't understand fully, do you? (sighs) Unfortunately, we're left with questions unanswered Mm. and but... We have a choice, I suppose, to try live with it. And if you can find the right support to help you along, which I have found in Hug, mm. you know, you're not alone. Yeah. yeah. Four years. Uh, yeah. Does it get? Does the pain ease, Christine? The intensity eases you learn coping skills I think yeah you know you yes you 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 learn to give yourself a little breaks you kind of try you learn to kind of stop questioning mm. all the time it's as we say in hug it's a process yeah yeah what kind of questions mm. do you ask yourself the biggest one is why yeah. Did you ever figure that out? I have many theories. Yeah. No answers. No answers. Just a normal, healthy 15 year old lad. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A good kid, good, loving kid, and who obviously had battles of his own. And even though I tried and tried to talk to him, and mm-hmm. just, just. But you never expect it. You never expect it to get to this and you never... No, no, yeah. no. I, ca- I cannot, for the living life of me, as a parent, um, my, my teen, the teenage years are gone from my house now, thankfully, but um, they're young adults and making their own way in the world, but the thoughts of losing a teenager, I, I cannot put my... I cannot get my head around that. Either can I, PJ, unfortunately. I know, I know, I know. Uh, you know, you're left with so many questions and the what-ifs and what kind of person they'll be growing up to be. You know, his birthday's coming up next month. He would be 20 and it's another trigger for me and, mm. you know. And when that comes, uh, you've led me on to uh, my next question. Now. When, when that comes... His birthday, and you might wake up on his birthday morning or maybe not even sleep that night, I don't know. Um, but can you call someone in Hug 
who just knows. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we've all agreed coming up to the, the anniversaries and birthdays can be harder than the actual day itself. So maybe for a week beforehand, we're reaching out to each other. I can reach out. Everyone, we all reach out to each other. As we said, as they said yesterday, we're on a WhatsApp group and it's it's open 24 hours and for any of us who need it and just even if we just want to explain how we're feeling or even just maybe put up um, a picture and a happy birthday to our loved one and the support back is just phenomenal luck. So. Yeah, yeah. They are looking for facilitators for a new group. Um, it sounds to me like like this is a group that should be represented in every village and town in Ireland. Absolutely. Absolutely, 100 agree. Unfortunately, suicide is another pandemic out there. Mm. And we do concentrate on the prevention of suicide, but unfortunately, that doesn't always work. Yeah. Yeah. So... It's the people who are left behind in the devastation really have very little options and are feeling a bit lost. And I do believe hug is the way for them to go. It's all of us dealing with bereavement to suicide in different stages and we're all learning from each other. You've been... And just having that comfort, knowing that these people understand. Yeah, that must be worth gold. That you just, you know, like I said, now when his birthday comes up, maybe the night before you're not sleeping very well, you might be just sitting there, probably possibly having a little cry at three o'clock in the morning. And yes, of course. And that, now that's not something that anybody understands, except at least you can go into your phone and someone gets it. Exactly. They get it. And as I said, like I'm four years, as I would say, four years in. And there is a perception out there that there should be a time there should there should be a time limit. But you never. No. No, it's still raw. I I hate to think that anyone would ever think that. No. I'd hate to think that. Unfortunately, there is a little kind of society, maybe kind of in society, they think maybe four years on you should be better. And you are better, Mm. but you never get over it. No. No. So having hug there and they understanding that is just absolutely priceless. Does, Does Adam have siblings? I have a daughter, yes, um, Shannon. She's twenty-three. How's she dealing? How's she dealing with? Like, could she go to hug? Has she been to hug? No. No, no, she hasn't been to hug. Um, no, we've been a great support to each other. And as I said, like at the time, she was in college, and she has now graduated, and um, she has persevered. Good. She's a strong girl. Good. She's a strong you one. You know. <laughs> Thank you. <sighs> It, it, I think that's, yeah. that, that seems to be the, the magic of HUG, that it's a group where they understand what you're going through because they've been there. Exactly. They've been there. They know the intensity of the pain. They know the questions you're asking. Mm-hmm. You know, there's... And is it well, fair? You're newly... 
Yeah, go ahead. Whether you're newly bereft or you're four or five years in, we're all the same. And and is it fair to say, Christine, and with all due respect to anyone professionally counselling the bereaved, if you haven't had this yourself, you, there's a level you can't get to. Is that fair to say? Yes, that is fair to say. As I said, the professional counselling does give you coping skills, which may be the physical sides of the trauma and the loss and everything. And it does help. I would never outrule it. But on a more deeper emotional side where your feelings and you have this empty gaping hole and unanswered questions, unless that person you're talking to has been there, they really, you know, there's no connection. What will you do now? Uh, you said Adam's birthday is later this month. What 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 will you do? How will you do you do you start preparing yourself for it? I do, I do. I I kind of yeah. Uh, it, it I won't say prepare yourself. It just kind of actually comes up. Yeah. Yeah, you like this is it, this is going to happen. And What do you do? Do you try to keep yeah. busy or do you give yourself time and space to, to, to spend time thinking of him or what? Um, the past few years I, I have. I have spent time just thinking and, you know, and reflecting, I suppose, on what could be, what has been and try to remember the good times. Mm. Spend time with Shannon, my daughter, and, yeah, and... Maybe this year I might we might head away for a few days, you know, just to hmm. be a bit more gentle on ourselves. Do you talk to him all the time? Hmm. Can I? And uh, if if this is probing too much, please do tell me. But you know, as as his mom, um, you're you're left with this. Like, do you do you get cross with him? Do you feel? cross with him for what he did. How do you feel about the way he left you? Um, at times very angry and I won't deny that. It's impossible not to be angry. Um, but I do have to understand that it was his choice. Yes. Yes. And for whatever, for whatever he was going through he felt it was the only choice. He felt it was the only choice. And you have to respect that. I 100% respect it. Obviously, I'm always going to be hurt. I'm always going to be sad. I'm, when all, you know, I'm always going to miss it. There's never a day goes by. But all, as I said, when these feelings of anger come up and these all these other feelings come up and you're kind of wondering why is why am I angry? Why am I this? And you need to talk to someone straight away. It's onto the hug. Yeah, and they know they, they know where you are, Christine. I, I wish you well, and um, I'll be thinking of you in the days to come as I know you approach his his birthday, and you'll have your your support of your your friends and hug to reach out and to Shannon as well. Thank you, Christine. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much. Take care. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. How would you deal with that? There is no way to deal with that. There really isn't. Yeah.
Um, I'll just take a break from that. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie. Cork's 96FM. Right, reminding you that Premier League Live is back for a special end-of-season show. Sunday, May 22nd. That's this Sunday coming. Uh, Trevor will be back with the team from 3 o'clock Sunday. On, on 96fm.ie, powered by Talk Sport. Live coverage, commentary, and interviews from the dramatic twists and turns on the final day of the Premier League. From three on the app or at 96fm.ie. It's the Premier League Live online with now stream live action from BT Sport and Premier Sport with a now Sports Extra membership. And listen Sunday from three on the app or at 96fm.ie. Just coming back to a few of the other topics of conversation. Yeah, that, one or two more people have come back with that about the little ducklings. And they may run for the drains. So it's worth looking at the side of the road out there in Sarsfield Road with the drains. Or if anyone's got a garden, they might run into the garden. And they can fall down the gratings. They're so little. They're so little, they can fall down the gratings on the big drains. Um, it happened in Shandon Street a few years ago, this caller told us. And that's where, they, 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 you know, the big grates now, not the little small grates, the big grates, they they're so small and so tiny that they can fall down through the grates. So look out for them. And just be careful of the road safety. Sarsfields Road, notorious, dangerous, notoriously dangerous. Uh, on the train, catering, uh, telling us that they won't have any catering until 2023, early 2023 at the latest. PJ, a bit of advice to anyone getting the train. Get your water or your food before you get there. The prices they charge are ridiculous. And Paulie Murphy says, shouldn't they cut the price of business class then, if they can't even organise catering? All refreshment businesses have problems, but they manage to get through it. It's not exactly a first-class business class experience. As, as Aaron Roderick said, the contract was cancelled because the company couldn't fulfil it. Con- cancelled by agreement. So now they've got to tender. On hip operations and cataracts, Tony was on, and out near the lock. Wants to thank Michael Collins, TD, for all his work on this. Says he's a true public service. I'm just listening here about the cataract bus. Back in 2016, the GP referred my husband to the eye clinic in COH as he showed cataracts. Every so often he gets a letter asking, does he want to stay on the list? And to get on the waiting list for an appointment. Got a letter yesterday offering an appointment in the matter private. He got the cataracts removed privately. In February, that always makes me laugh. Like you're on a waiting list for something, and they 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 write, you know, do you still want a waiting list? Like has your has your dodgy hip miraculously healed, or or has your cataract disappeared overnight? Yeah. On hug and the work they do, just a simple message says sending love to those beautiful people. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Just on books for a second. I was talking to Jack and Hugh, Jack Horgan Jones and Hugh O'Connell, the authors of Pandemonium, earlier on this morning, and delighted to see that another author we've had on the show more than once, Andrea Mara, has just signed up for another two new books 
from her publishers. Uh, her next book is out in August. Looking forward to that. And her last book, which she was on here with me about, called All Her Fault, which is a super read, uh, that has currently been, or is currently being adapted for television. So we love to talk to our Irish authors regularly on the programme and uh, good to read, to hear that about one of my personal favourites. On train catering, Bernie asks, did they ever think someone with a disability might not be able to carry a bag with something in it? They could at least provide water and a few packets of biscuits. This is true, Bernie. 0818969696. Now there's your show coming to the Marina Market uh, tomorrow night that I, I wanted to see for a while. Um, there have been many shows and many books and many documentaries and many other things done about Michael Collins, the famous movie with Liam Neeson and, and many others besides about Michael Collins. But it remains, I would suggest, probably one of the most bizarre whodunits in Irish history, because we know so much about Michael Collins and the death of Michael Collins, but we don't really know that much about the circumstances of his death. And it's Paddy Cullivan has put together this show called The Murder of Michael Collins, which comes to the Marine Market uh, tomorrow night. And it's an unusual show, Paddy, in that it's a musical, there's a bit of comedy, a lot of audiovisual, but effectively it's a, it's a history lesson on the great whodunit of Ireland. Paddy, good morning. Good morning to you. When did you first develop yes, it, it, an interest in, in, in Collins? Well, I mean, weirdly for my my thesis in my leaving cert, I did something on John Charters, the mystery man of the treaty, the seventh delegate that we never talk about. We're always told there was six delegates. And within that framework, I was, I was finding about Collins' London life. He had this bizarre life in London for 10 years before he ever came back for the, for the rising, where he was basically a spy and doing huge espionage. He was marking Lloyd George from 1910 onwards. So he's an incredible character. We we kind of interpret Collins as this kind of belled country fella, you know, who with a bit of guile and, and nouse uh, took the British Empire. But he's far more like James Bond, PJ. He's a very interesting character. And I go into that in the show tomorrow, um, that long before the Easter Rising was even conceived, this man was working for Ireland. Wow. Yeah. He was a much yeah. deeper character than we do think. And why do you think the great mystery surrounding his his death remains to this day. Why, why was it never solved, Paddy, do you think? Exactly. Well, well, think about my show as a kind of a multimedia podcast. It's live on stage. I have 300 amazing images. There's a couple of songs. There's a couple of films. And I basically take you through the... And where the comedy element comes in, unfortunately, is because it's so farcical. Michael Collins never had an inquest into his death. There was no inquiry. He has no autopsy. There, he doesn't even have a death cert. The cover-up afterwards was absolutely unbelievable. We have no forensic or ballistic evidence from the whole thing. So that when people talk about, oh, it was Sonny O'Neill who shot him or it was Emmett Dalton or any of these people, there is no actual evidence extant. And that's one of the most bizarre things about it. There's absolutely zero evidence. So all we can go on is he said, she said, but then also the incredible cover-up of his death. And it's quite mysterious. And that's I go into all the facets of that tomorrow. And people, it's a roller coaster of, of a show. It's very like the JFK thing, but with less evidence. It's unbelievable. The car he was in ended up in Kenya a month later. Nobody even investigated what, what happened. No, Kenya? Yes, I mean, we have no... In Kenya. 
So we have no idea what happened. A bit like JFK's car was cleaned immediately by the FBI, so there'd be no evidence. I mean, this stuff is incredible. And I know it sounds conspiratorial, but when you go through the actual facts of the matter, it is one of the most bizarre, unexplainable stories in Irish history. And because of that, we've had to fill in the gaps ourselves. But what people have filled it in with is pure imagination because there's no evidence, PJ. Do you reach a conclusion in the show? Or can you, I mean, for I do. all your research, have you reached a personal conclusion? I have, but unfortunately you'd have to go to the show to see it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's one of those things. I'll be on at 7pm tomorrow in the Marina Market, but I'm also doing a 2pm show for schools. So if there's any interested students or third to sixth year history students in secondary, come down. Uh, at 2pm tomorrow go to hello at marinamarket.e because I've done a show for schools and they love it because it's conspiratorial it's funny there's even a couple of songs in it it's that type of thing but it's no less mysterious to them it's it's a, it's it's one of the strangest things we've ever known and, and of course I proved Collins was a great Republican but how he was taken down the mysterious nature of Bail Nablaw and I'm, I'm so happy to bring it to Cork PJ because the Bail Nablaw site we think from the movie it was just a small little lane it was the length of Patrick Street mm. so from the cart from the cart where the uh, ambush, where they stopped to where Collins was killed is from, from Patrick's Bridge to the Grand Parade. That was the length of it, almost half a kilometre, a very big uh, site. And so it was really two ambushes. And I go into that physically in the show. Yeah, it was like it was a very well-constructed ambush. It, it was, they set out to get him. There was a lot of No, they didn't, Pete. No, they? they didn't. There was, there was about five of them left. No, they were, taking the, they were taking the ambush down. There was originally 32 IRA men. By the time Collins' convoy got there, they were taking it down because the farmer had to milk the cows, right? It was not a big plan. So in fact, they only, saw him going th- really? no, they only saw him going through. Really? No, they only saw him going through in the morning, set up the ambush, and then gave up by about half six. And it was only at that time that the convoy actually arrived. I mean, these are the big lies we tell ourselves. And I'm sorry, it's, it's, and I'm, 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 this is the thing. We've all, we all think we know the story of Michael Collins. But when you come to my show tomorrow, you'll see me take it apart and put it back together again. It, it was not a big plan. There was no conceived thing two days or three days earlier. This was, the whole thing was a farce. So no one sat down and said, we need to get rid of that fella and here's how we're going to do it. Listen. PJ, there was five ambushers, to five to seven ambushers, and 25 in the convoy. 30 men go into the Valley of Death, and not one of them is even wounded or has a scrape on them, bar the dead leader, Michael Collins. There's something deeply mysterious at the heart of that. And the cover-up must have started well, straight away. He had 24 bodyguards. They're the worst bodyguards in history. I mean, the first thing that should have happened is he should have been put into the armoured car. Why does he end up 50, 50 yards away from everybody else out on his own? It's very, very strange. And this is what I go into. It, the cover-up afterwards is so strange because tons of documents were burnt uh, pertaining to him and we have no physical evidence of anything. So it's, it's, it's a mad, mad story. All right. Where would people get the tickets, Paddy? They can go to paddycullivan.com and they'll get their tickets for my 7 p.m. It's an early show, 7 to 9 tomorrow night. And then uh, for 2 p.m. for the schools, they can go to hello at marinamarket.ie. And I really, I'm really chuffed that the lads have faith in me to bring it down. It's my first time doing the Michael Collins show in Cork. So go easy on me, lads. Go oh, easy listen, on me. Paddy, I will see you there. <laughs> I, it's fascinating, fascinating show. And, and, and good fun as well by the sounds of it. And all the reviews. The reviews are amazing for the show. It's in the Marina Market tomorrow night, paddycullivan.com. The murder of Michael Collins. A story you thought you knew. But you didn't know it at all. Thank you, Paddy. That's it. Yes, that is it for today. The programme edited by Fiona Corcoran, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. See you tomorrow, just after nine. Can we just talk? 
The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.